Welcome, welcome everyone to this week's episode of Health News from Around the World. The live show was recorded on 12-26-2021 and had over 1.5 thousand listeners. Feel free to join us every uh, weekend on Sunday at 10 a.m. Eastern. This week's show, in terms of non-COVID related stories, we talked a bit about the fact that Afghanistan is dealing with a huge hunger crisis. We also talked about the fact that Carbon Health just recently launched a program for continuous glucose monitoring. On the COVID side of things, we continue to talk about Omicron. We talked about the differences in severity of hospitalizations for vaccinated and unvaccinated folks, as well as the overall changes that we're seeing, uh, both in terms of disease severity and disease onset. Cases are spiking, and we genuinely hope you enjoyed this week's show because there's a ton of useful information, and we hope to see you soon. So now, on to the show. Um, The next story I actually wanted to pivot to a little bit on the sadder side, but I want to make sure we hit it because... It's a topic we've hit consistently in this group. And uh, as you know, we actually hit stories way earlier than they become mainstream, sadly. Um, I mean, in this case, it's definitely a sad, sad thing. But um, Dr. Donish, I remember you tell, talking about the hunger crisis in Afghanistan, actually almost close to a month, if not more than a month ago. Uh, and now it seems to obviously have made bigger headlines and it uh, seems much sadder um, and more severe than it has been in the past. Uh, but basically, as winter sets in, nearly 23 million people, more than half the population uh, of Afghanistan, are facing extreme levels of hunger, according to the United Nations, and at least a million children under five are at risk of dying from starvation. Uh, the one um, caveat I'm going to give is if you're going to click on the link above, um, there are some you know, really saddening images, and it's slightly disturbing because the kids that you're going to see are, are around the age of like you know five a three-year-old, but they look like five months, right? So that's that's kind of the thing I want to make sure I, I mention uh, because this is actually a, a crisis and the person and the individual they have on on the story is actually a real um, real person suffering and um, just kind of putting a face to the story. Dr. Donish, I think you had mentioned this. What we'll also do is as you mentioned this, I know you also mentioned places to donate. So maybe I'll tweet that out as well. Yeah, so... Uh... You know, just wanted to give some context here. And again, this is health news around the world. And when people think of health, they think of medicine, but health is very different from medicine. Uh, you know, and, and the way to think about it is what was the greatest advance we've had in health of a population? It's not a new medicine. People always say antibiotics or they'll say penicillin or whatever. It's actually plumbing, right? Uh, it's, it's, uh, broad access to food and domestication. These are the things that have real impact. When we're looking at a country like Afghanistan, where, uh, where uh, again, I will say I'm very biased. My, my wife is, was a refugee from Afghanistan um, uh, and uh, uh, dealt with a lot of these issues uh, during the, the, the war, wars uh, as she was growing up. But um, you know, uh, right now in Afghanistan, over three and a half million children are at risk of starvation and one million children are actually uh, are likely to die from starvation um, and no one's talking about it. Um, not enough people. This is one of the first mainstream media news stories about this. And we have, you know, and the problem is not so simple. We can blame it on some administration. We can blame it on Taliban. We can blame it on all these different people. But it's not that simple because the and I'll talk tell you guys about what's happening on the ground from family and what I've heard. And um, and again, this is 
at some level anecdotal, but I do trust these resources. Some of them actually work at large NGOs like UNHCR, uh, which if we can tag uh, UNHCR's donation, that'd be great, Prerak. Um, and if people are interested, just just DM me. I'm happy to, you know, UNHCR has a charity navigator rating in the high 80s or even low 90s. And so very, very, very reputable charity that is actually much better than most of the UN charities, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, UNICEF, they're partnering with UNS, uh, UNICEF to actually work on the ground. There's also, if you're Muslim and you're looking for a Muslim-based charity, uh, you can also look them up on, uh, you know, Charity Navigator, which is what I use, by the way, when I'm looking at any charity. I don't just put money in charities without knowing where the money's going. It's Islamic relief. They do great work uh, and it's non-religious, actually. Uh, so even though they call Islamic relief, they don't put any, they don't only help Muslims, even though Afghanistan obviously is a very large majority of the people there are Muslim. Uh, but um, uh, the, the challenge that's happening in Afghanistan that people aren't talking about is not around Taliban. It's around the fact that we've held back aid from around the world because there's concern that it's not going to get to the people, which is a fair concern. But we've also uh, not provided protection for the, for the uh, non-governmental organizations or the NGOs that are on the ground. And that's actually the biggest problem. There's actually, the problem is distribution on the ground. And so that's why the few that are down there, we need to double down and triple down in the help that we can get to them. Because when I say children are dying, like these are literally children dying from malnutrition. The, the story that they talked about is one of millions, right? Camilla. Oh, sure. And it's not, Camilla, you can see it in the pictures, Dr. Janish. This is really scary and sad. I mean, this is- yeah. It's not a. It's not something that you see every day at all, right? So and, this. And, and one thing that I I found pretty rock is you know when this happens, there's a level of disbelief. Like how could this be possible, right? Millions of children dying. I can tell you, my relatives that are in Afghanistan, um, uh, it's it's scary. It's not just scary because of the fact that there's no access to food because food distribution has been cut off, but it's also scary because it's leading to looting, it's leading to fighting, it's leading to tribalism more than ever, it's leading to people who previously had, were safe being unsafe. And if we don't do something about this, this humanitarian crisis could, uh, could boil over. And I'm, I can tell you when we talk about health around the world, we can't ignore countries. And I'm gonna mention a few, and again, this is no, I have no political, hat in the race. I don't care about who the politicians are. I care about the fact that the health of, you know, how can we call ourselves people that are committed to the global health and not think about these innocent children that are literally dying in Ethiopia, in Afghanistan, uh, you know, around the world, uh, in Myanmar. We're seeing the same pattern repeat itself, which is, hey, if you don't follow the, you know, my beliefs, you don't matter and we can't just look away. And I'm actually very happy that the mainstream media, specifically CNN, actually put this out there. But isn't it surprising that we've known about this for months and no one has written about it? Almost six weeks, dude. Like, Doc, you brought this up. I remember at the end of one of our shows to make sure we remembered it as a way to donate. Six weeks have gone by. No one, I have yet to see a big news story about it, despite it being as important, if not more important, because these are kids, right? Think about the lives, your life years. If you're really talking about life years and the impact you can have, these are kids who are dying from something entirely preventable. Um, it should be uh, more important to a certain extent than COVID because you can solve it. 
Um, so yeah, it's, it's really sad that it's taken this long. And it's actually even sadder that it's not being covered nearly as much. I mean, granted, there's a lot going on, but I still don't think that's a valid excuse. So um, for those of you who are new to our show, I just tweeted this out on our Twitter. We're almost at 500 followers. So shoot us a follow there and uh, click on this link there because this link is going to slowly go away as we share more. I just want to make sure people at least have a place that they know everything is going to be stored and that's going to be on our Twitter. Um, any any other words from anyone on stage regarding this um, or any any other thoughts, Dr. Donish? Otherwise, we can um, pivot uh, to another story. I would just uh, like to support uh, this cause and we need to be uh, maybe reaching inwards, um, uh, exercising kindness and compassion uh, towards children, no matter where they are located. And um, I think we can all find it in our heart to help the needy population around the globe. So thank you, uh, Dr. Danish, for highlighting this issue in this space. Absolutely. Um, so the other um, thing I'm going to um, pivot to is um, this one is a little bit different. Um, but if, again, as, as I said, anyone else comes up with any news stories not related to COVID that they want to make sure we address, just for, make sure you tweet them at us because there weren't too many um, <laughs> this week because it seems like <laughs> COVID is taking over everything and anything, unfortunately. Uh, but let's let's talk a bit about this. And thank you, Jeff. You gave us a lot of great non-COVID-related stories this week. And for that, I am uh, very grateful because I'm glad that there's a lot happening. But this one is a little bit um, related to inflammatory bowel disease. So if you know anyone who has either Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, uh, this is about them. And uh, in this case, the reason this story is interesting is that um, basically there is a correlation and not a causation, a correlation between the fact that individuals with uh, inflammatory bowel disease tend to have more microplastics in their stool. I'm sure we actually all have microplastics in our stool, but it shows that these individuals have a little bit more and it's, it's links to the fact that individuals with IBD may either have more microplastic exposure or the fact that they have more microplastic exposure makes them more likely to get um, IBD, which is inflammatory bowel disease. And the other reason I wanted to bring this story up is just because I feel like very few of us question uh, what we eat sometimes. And um, I feel like we're all consuming a certain amount of like plastic and stuff that probably isn't that the, isn't the best for us. And I think this story just kind of brings that to light and how this stuff can potentially add up over the years uh, to not only potentially cause disease, but also be either a result of disease. Um, so I wanted to pin that there. And this is the actual study, but I think I'll also pin and tweet out the news article that was written about this study. Yeah. So, uh, you know, just so people are wondering, like, where I don't need any plastics. Um, so that's actually not true. So let's walk through it. Uh, microplastics, actually, when, when you do evaluation across multiple different animals, you actually find that in birds, fishes, uh, and whales, uh, you know, uh, they actually find microplastics uh, in their, uh, in the, you know, in their actual, uh, in the food that we eat that comes from those resources. And it's largely because they're ingesting them. Uh, so when we think about, and I know uh, Dr. Priya is very, uh, uh, very pro veganism and so on. There's actually, that is one case for having that conversation around, can we 
by 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 moving to plant a plant-based diet can we actually avoid some of these microplastics that are causing inflammatory reactions uh, in uh, in our food pro uh, you know in, in our bowels and when you think about it you know but but the the pushback to that has been and just want to kind of get both sides of it is that you know they've even found some of these microplastics in poorly filtered I'm not getting drinking water in beer in table salt in seafood, uh, it, sorry, in, uh, it, it, even my, my belief actually was even in, in, in some of the plants, on the surface of plants that are not cleaned appropriately. And so what are the implications of this? I actually was trying to find prereq, what do we do about this? Outside of reducing our plastic consumption, which is a team sport, but we've learned quite well in the last few years, team sports are not the best sports to play as a human race. And so, um, so I don't know what people can do about it. Can they, is, are there certain foods that we should be avoiding prereq? Do you know? I don't think there's any like tangible thing here. I think the big, big point for me was just this aspect of actually questioning what we eat and realizing that if there is crap in it, that crap can either cause disease or be a function of the disease that you ultimately have. So um, I, it just made me question a little bit more like kind of the stuff that we're putting into our body because at, at the end of the day, I think when you're putting, when you're eating three meals a day, every day for your whole life, it just adds up. Even if these microplastics, um, you think are like negligible. Um, and so that was like the big point that I was thinking. Um, I don't know if we have any gastroenterologists or anyone with GI insights on stage, but if you do, feel free to drop them. We always love being enlightened. So Sea Life actually, hi guys, Sea Life actually has uh, been studied and documented um, that they ingest a lot of microplastics, right? Because we dump so much crap into the oceans. Um, and then um, when you ingest that, that's one of the many issues with um, eating fish and things like that. That's right. Yeah. And mercury too. in in those, in those bad boys, I think, right. Cause that, that mercury piles up to a certain extent as you move up the food chain. Yeah. Mercury, nuclear radiation from the Fukushima disaster. I mean, there's, there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot there, but yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating that it's actually having direct impact on IBD for people that don't know, uh, for some people, who, uh, you know, uh, for, for some people getting IBD leads to lifelong uh, debilitation, lifelong challenges. They have to be on medication for the rest of their life. We do have good medications for it, but it can increase your risk of cancer with UC, with ulcerative colitis. And so it's, uh, it's not something to be taken lightly. I just don't know what we can actually do about it. And that's kind of sometimes the hardest part. First, we have to be aware, and then maybe then we can take some action. So uh, we can move on to the next one. Yes, sir. Let's do it. So going down the list, you know, what's crazy. I don't know if anyone else has felt this way. I have, it's getting tougher and tougher to find news stories, not related to COVID. It's like very frustrating because even like the most mundane thing now, they find a way to like link it to COVID. It's like people aren't outside anymore. COVID, this, this COVID. <laughs> so actually like this is probably one of the first weeks where I actually had a little bit of a tougher time. Um, talking about um, non-COVID related things, but there was one interesting one. And this one is a little bit more related to like digital health and, um, and virtual monitoring. So Carbon Health, which is a, it's a company, um, it launches a program for continuous glucose monitoring to curve diabetes risk. I think we talked a bit about this in the past, um, but let me pin this link 
And let's talk about, for anyone who is new to this room, what is a CGM, what's diabetes, and how does this all have to do with this company? So CGM stands for Continuous Glucose Monitoring. You put this bad boy on your body, it's like a monitor, and it actually monitors your glucose levels. For anyone not in medicine, glucose is essentially like your lifeblood. It helps maintain and allow you to do the things that you do. You may have noticed that if you go on for a long time without eating, your hands may start to shake. Maybe you'll feel a little bit out of it. That's You're probably hypoglycemic, which means not enough blood sugar in your blood, and that doesn't allow you to function properly. The biggest issue with diabetics, these are individuals who can't make insulin, is that they are unable to get glucose out of their bloodstream and into their organs, into different organs in their body. And all your organs need glucose. And the role of CGM here is that if you, in theory, can monitor your glucose levels and you can start noticing that, hey, why do my glucose levels not decrease after I eat? They stay elevated for a large amount of time. Maybe I have, or maybe I am developing diabetes. So that's the hypothesis here. Whether this will work or not is, is yet to be affirmed, but the point is, if you can find CGMs and put them on individuals you think are at high risk for either type 1 or type 2 diabetes, which is the disease where there's inability to get glucose into your organs, then maybe you can prevent diabetes down the road because you can actually tell people, hey, you're at higher risk, and here's how we can make sure you don't uh, develop diabetes. Um, what, do you, what do you think about this, Dr. Donish? I don't know how I feel, but I, I have some thoughts. No, I'm, I, I'm pretty pop. I'm pretty on board with this one. This one, just to be very, very clear, you're going to hear two types of people talk about CGM. The, the, the people that are actually taking care of diabetics, you know, the endocrinologists and so on, and then your tech bros uh, and people that are worried well and people that are really into just trying to fix their diet by using more information. Nothing wrong with either, either side. I'm just saying that we right now have a shortage of CGM devices for the people that actually need it. And so what Carbon is doing, which is really smart, is Carbon actually, if people, for people that don't know, they bought a company called Steady Health, not to be con confused with Steady MD. They bought Steady Health. Steady Health was working on this uh, uh, remote patient monitoring for diabetics. Um, and I can tell you that nothing is going to be uh, they're not going to get any pushback because CGM has been shown to reduce hypoglycemic episodes. CGM has been super helpful for managing diabetics so that they don't have to keep taking their, uh, their, you know, how you see a diabetic, take a little prick and put it on. You don't need to do any of that. It's continuously, uh, you know, monitoring it. It can improve their control, uh, glycemic control over time. You will get zero pushback from someone like me on the use of CGM for diabetics. So I wanted to make that very clear before I go into the other area. What Carbon is not doing, and this is, it, it is not related to what Carbon is doing, but in general, there are companies like Levels and others, they're essentially allowing regular people to be able to use CGMs to make their, you know, make their, uh, to see what foods are actually making them spike more and things like that. And while I see the value of that in a shortage of CGM devices in the middle of a supply chain crisis, I think that's the that's the wrong move. Once we can get this price much lower and we can get much broader supply of these devices, I would be absolutely for it. In fact, I would want one for myself as well. So I think uh, when it comes to what Carbon is doing, I'm 100% on board. Because if you, if you, you know, what people don't realize is the traditional hemoglobin A1C 
less than seven or less than 6.5, depending on who you talk to, is actually a really crappy marker. Uh, and pre-rep, we talked about this story a little bit ago around, you know, how uh, that's been pushed quite significantly by the large pharma companies. In reality, if we can monitor uh, a diabetic's glucose, con uh, you know, uh, 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 glycemic control in a more dynamic fashion, we can actually titrate their medications, their diet, uh, and we can show them in real time. Remember, the, 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 the crappy thing about healthcare has been doctors say, you need to do this and you don't get that feedback loop as clearly. But with these devices, the patient can sit and say, hey, I probably shouldn't have had that. You know, I'm a diabetic type two, di brittle type two diabetic. And brittle here just means that even the smallest thing can get them off of their control uh, measures and, and off of their uh, the, the areas where we would like for them to be. You know, and so ultimately, like somebody says, hey, maybe I shouldn't be eating that ice cream at 9 p.m. at night uh, every day. Uh, and, and now they have that feedback because they see their glucose shoot up and, uh, you know, they're seeing it in real time. The more transparency we have with patients, especially people that are living with chronic disease, the better chances we have of reducing hospitalizations, reducing emergency room visits, and more importantly, improving uh, you know, how they take care of themselves. I wanted to give other people a chance to kind of weigh in on the diabetics. I think it's pretty well established on the diabetic side, but Mohammed, did you have a thought? Yeah, so, you know, I have a little bit of experience with these devices. My uh, wife is a type one diabetic. Uh, so we use uh, from a company called Edge Park and we get like Omnipods and Dexcom and all these diabetic supplies. Unfortunately, it's extremely expensive for us. You know, we kind of do have to pay out of pocket. Insurance does not cover it, even though we have like Blue Cross Blue Shield, comes close to about a grand a month. Uh, for all the diabetic supplies, right? Um, and it's really good. It's really annoying because, like, my wife's, uh, like, you know, like, the phone goes off every, like, two, three hours. Like, yo, your glucose is above 125. And you're like, 125 is not the worst deal, you know? Whatever. But, uh, you know, her phone always constantly goes off it, to the point kind of becomes a little bit, like, you know, like, fatigue, like, phone fatigue. You know you know what I'm talking about in hospitals? Sometimes the alarms kind of go off, you know? So that's, that's one thing. I, I'm not sure about this company. How cheap are they offering that, you know? Um, I have, like, you know, I, I think you have like top notch insurance for them to even consider, you know, uh, covering some kind of devices like this. But for at least for us, at least I can speak on my anecdotal experiences, it comes to about like a grand a month for all the supplies and everything. Um, it is not as accurate as, uh, you know, I'm talking about just Dexcom in general as actually like, you know, if you're actually pricking your finger by itself, that's a little bit more accurate. So sometimes you can give a little bit false reads um so uh, we, we see that sometimes like one of our endocrinologists he one time like you know the, uh, the patient's um uh you know insulin pump uh was not working anymore and she's like hey my thing is reading as my glucose is super super high so he directly admitted from his clinic to the icu and when they checked their blood glucose uh in the hospital in the icu it was like maybe like 150 and they're like oh whoops all three you know but um so it's interesting to see like how, how accurate these numbers will be, number one, and if there's going to be like a reduced price. I understand they're trying to get this out to the general public, but, um, you know, in general, just just warning you, it's a lot of alarm fatigue, you know. Um, if it's going to be very, very sensitive. It's going to like start like, you know, uh, blasting an alarm every time like your sugars are a little bit off, you know. Uh, with that being said, I, I think you mentioned something about like the hemoglobin A and C that, you know, it's a crappy marker. To some degree, I agree. But, uh, you know, uh, those guidelines are there for a reason because, um, uh, you know, in, in, because when you have a little bit too tight control, 
assuming you're not like pregnant or something, right? Um, especially in older people, you get a lot of like hypoglycemic episodes, a lot of like syncope and things like that. We admit this all the time in the hospital, you know? Um, we find someone who's like, like maybe like 72 and their hemoglobin in C for the diabetic, they're like 5.6, really well controlled, but then they all start having all these hypoglycemic episodes. Um, and it's uh, harder to, um, you know, it's, 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 it's better at that time to just kind of be like, hey, we, we can do a little bit, you know, give you like less doses of medications or less insulin just to kind of reduce your hypoglycemic episodes uh, and maybe even let your hemoglobin, you know, I think the current guidelines is like if, if you're above the age of uh, 65 or above 70, it's okay for a hemoglobin MC to be below eight, um, you know, uh, because once you kind of get a little bit, you know, too tight control, you start having these like weird hypoglycemic episodes and, you know, hypoglycemia is, uh, has worse mortality than hyperglycemia. Yeah, absolutely, Mama. I just wanted to push back a little bit on, you know, this is the interesting part, right? And so we're all learning here. There's this incredible investigative report from Reuters that looked at the money behind pushing for a lower target on the hemoglobin A1C. And I think that's, uh, you know, Mama, I would I just spin the link. I would take a look at that. It's fascinating, man. Like the level of coordination on their side and how they push for it and exactly what you were saying, which is, uh, you know, and the amount of hypoglycemic episodes that have occurred because they kept on pushing a lower and lower and lower target that is actually not even the target that we need, you know, and with the target that would be safe for something like this. And, you know, we, we are, you know, in, in health news around the world, we have uh, a, a healthy discourse around around these topics. And so, you know, uh, just to kind of make sure that everybody's on the same page, this Reuters investigation that I just linked, uh, you know, looked at, you know, years long marketing campaigns for treatment targets that they actually created. It was not created by uh, the, the healthcare providers, not created by the academics, but it became so ingrained in the way that we were taught that it felt as if it was. And actually, Danish, it, it, it I was, think that's true of blood blood pressure treat also. Yeah, I you know, and I, I would have to again, Francine, you know us. I need to see the data. We need to get through it. Can you find some articles on that, Francine? I would love to dig deep on that because you know, I, I do wonder, you know, again, physician here. I believe yeah. in the way that we run things. But uh Francine, if you could send over some articles, we, we will do a deep dive because you know, the thing that we do in this room for anybody that has just joined us is we don't just take people uh, at their word. We don't even take the studies at their word. Dr. Priya has a really good uh, uh, good uh, update also that we're going to share, which again, the goal here is to go beyond just the headlines and to actually read through it. This evaluation by Reuters was incredible. They actually looked at the number of hypoglycemic episodes. They looked at all the advocacy organizations and how they fought. They were fighting against this um, specific, uh, you know, push and how ultimately they all succumbed. And this is now something that is part of our mantra. I mean, like, you know. Uh, uh, so Danish, go ahead. sorry, my app is glitching. I thought you were done. I apologize. Oh, no, go ahead, Bria. I was done. I was just going to say, you know, in the lifestyle medicine world, we actually didn't really follow those guidelines, right? So if you look at if you look at the Accord study, and there's another one whose name I always forget, there are two studies that looked at 
really tight glycemic control in patients. And they actually had to stop the ACCORD trial early because in the aggressive treatment arm, they noticed increase, increases in um, cancer and heart disease, right? Likely related to promotion of, you know, because of insulin and its properties. So um, it's kind of interesting what you're talking about, but yes, we, we certainly can be susceptible to, um, this influence in a way that's not malicious, right? It's just as exactly as you said, it's marketed so hard and so strong, we sort of start to absorb that knowledge, right? Um, and believe it. But yeah, if you look at the Accord trial, and I'll see if I can find the other trial, um, it's pretty clear that this is, we've, we've sort of known in the literature that this is not good, that super tight control using insulin, right? Obviously, I'm not talking about diet and other behavior changes, but using insulin specifically. So this and so let's walk through this in a little bit. Sorry, I just want to, and Prerak, I know we've talked about this study, this uh, article before, but Mohammed, just to kind of get you on board with this. So the, 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 the actual investigation showed that most of this, you know, promotion of hemoglobin A1C less than 7%, the charge was led by Aventis and then uh, Sanofi uh, uh, after it acquired Aventis in 2004. Um, and I mean, you follow the money. Aventis donated heavily to the American Diabetes Association and other groups that were supporting this A1C below 7%. Um, it, these are multiple millions of dollar ad campaigns getting elected officials. Uh, you know, they were able to spread the word. Even Novo Nordisk and Eli Lilly became big donors of the ADA. Perhaps our advocacy organizations shouldn't be taking money from pharma. Maybe that's an answer. But the other side of it is, you know, um, this, and by the way, it worked. And there's a beautiful chart in here that they, uh, you know, uh, the IQVA, VIA Institute for Human Data Science showed that U.S. sales of diabetes drugs soared to $74 billion last year. Up from seven I'm tweeting that picture out for, for anyone who wants to see that picture. I'm tweeting it out, but yeah. Dr. Let's go for it. yeah, and and you know, again, this is big business, and we really, again, not. I'm not trying to pick on anybody. I'm not trying to. I'm just saying, like, sometimes what makes, at least for me, these rooms enjoyable is that you know we don't take anything at face value. A lot of these organizations, they're coming out with it, just like Priya said. There are people that are looking at actual trials. And they did mention, Priya, in this article, Accord Trials. Thank you for bringing that up. They showed that the, 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 the keeping hemoglobin A1C less than seven was actually potentially uh, the wrong move. So, Mohammed, I just wanted to give you the chance to respond. I'm sorry. Well, no, absolutely. Yeah, no, of course, I, I completely agree. Um, you know, especially in the, as a family medicine uh, physician, when I used to, in residency, when I used to have outpatient uh, uh, you know, patients, what we typically did was we tried to titrate below a hemoglobin MC of seven, especially in younger patients, uh, at least in our population. It's a heavily Hispanic 95%. A lot of people, it was an FQHC. A lot of people did not have good coverage and insurance. Um, so they basically ended up, some of them end up getting diabetes much sooner in life, right? Uh, so when they're young, much younger, they were able to titrate, uh, you know, uh, tolerate a hemoglobin MC less than seven, uh, much better compared to their older counterparts. So our goal was hemoglobin MC of less than 8% uh, for people above 65 and 
less than seven percent for people less than sixty-five. But those guidelines would, uh, you know, uh, be thrown away right away because in every diabetic patients, I would make them get um, what is it? I would make them uh, uh, check their fasting blood glucose, uh, depending on how bad it was, maybe once a day to three times a day. Um, and you would kind of go through everything of their sugars, when it was highest, when it was lowest. It's a very gruesome task, but it's every single diabetic patient, you know, I had to go through them and make sure that, you know, if they were having hypoglycemic episodes and forget the guidelines, you know, you're going to like lower your insulin or lower your diabetes medications and titrate in a way that you would have zero hypoglycemic episodes if possible. Now, if once like in a random while was a uh, thing that happened, then we would just ignore that. But if they're having more than one hypoglycemic episodes, then yes, then we would just kind of lower the medications or lower the insulin. And I absolutely agree. Even like uh, if you guys are aware of the NICE sugar trial, right? Uh, basically, uh, blood sugar control in the intensive care unit uh, for patients. And they said that, you know, if you were having tighter sugar controls in patients in the intensive care unit, you had a higher mortality. So it said the best, um, you know, range is between 140 and 180 uh, for blood glucose for patients in the ICU. And that's, they had the best survival ability. Um, and uh, that was something very interesting to me. At least in our uh, residency, we, we really tried to implement. Yeah. Thanks, Mohammed. I was going to say, you know, I'm going to copy something from Bill Maher. New rule. New rule, advocacy organizations should not be allowed to take money from people that benefit from their, uh, from their uh, recommendations. Perhaps that should be a new rule. What do you think, so I, I'm going to say I've not followed them for years, right? So let's talk about Susan G. Komen taking money from dairy. Let's talk about the AHA taking money from um, the beef industry. Um, the ADA takes money from, uh, you know, and they do take money from pharma as well. So does the ADA. I do not believe that these organizations, honestly, sorry, I do not believe these organizations honestly have the consumer the consumer's best interest at heart. I would much prefer to follow, you know, endocrinology societies, the American College of Cardiology. By the way, same thing with the American Lung Association, right? Um, so, you know, it's just not it's just not where I choose to to, you know, take recommendations or guidelines from for this reason. There is way too much, um, in my opinion, conflict of interest in those Absolutely. Did anybody else have a thought on this before we move on? Yeah, I, I have, a, I have a few um, small thoughts. So the first one is um, I tweeted out that Accord trial, but let me let me read you a very very scary <laughs> um, quote from that trial, uh, which which is I think the epitome of kind of what everyone was on stage was talking about. The Accord trial was halted when patients in the intensive therapy group, after getting down to an average A one C of six point four percent. Started, di started dying at a higher rate than those who averaged 7.5% on standard therapy. I say this as the son of a diabetic who, you know, for the longest time growing up, you know, the benchmark was like, oh, dad's A1C is up now, or dad's A1C is, is lower than seven. Woohoo. And now we read this trial and you realize that actually um, tight monitoring of blood glucose and tight monitoring of A1C to try to get it below seven is actually to a certain extent a little bit worse than just like letting your body habituate to a certain extent and be okay where it's at. Um, so all that to say, this was like a really surprising sentence to me and I tweeted it out. Um, but thank you, Dr. Freya, for, for bringing that to my stage and uh, bringing, not bringing that to my attention because there was just something that I've, I've heard a lot about indirectly, just didn't know where it came from. So good to know. 
The second thing is let's let's connect this back to our our CGM that thing the the story that this started with right. When, when we make these CGMs now available to individuals at high risk for diabetes, I think the big point that we're making from these studies is, you know, aggressive monitoring may not always be the best. So then the question is, does making these CGMs available does that encourage aggressive monitoring from individuals who may not? Oh, be interesting. I, I will I will push back to my co-host here and say we should do a, aggressive monitoring, but not aggressive treatment. And those are two very different things, Pirak. And I, you know, this is a very good point for yeah. you. So when Muhammad was talking about what he's doing with young diabetics, I would say to Muhammad, Muhammad, that young diabetic, that young diabetic is a good candidate for CGMs because, uh, uh, because to me, uh, that young diabetic can actually change their behavior based on the CGM information uh, and would be more likely to be able to do something like that. Um, and unfortunately, as many people know, those are the people that, whose insurance usually is, does not cover the freaking thing that would be the most impactful for them. Look at how our system is set up, right? It's just, uh, uh, so that's my pushback, Birak. I like it. That it should actually be ad ad aggressive tracking as compared to aggressive treatment. Right now, we're assuming that all patients are the same and they should all be below this hypothetical number that, by the way, is not based in evidence. Uh, it's, it's in terms of its safety profile. Uh, you know, Matt just joined the stage. Matt, did you have a thought on this CGM slash hemoglobin A1C slash Carbon health story. Hey, no, yeah, uh, I think the biggest thing is the other piece is that so for patients with diabetes, um, having a CGM is that you do long term. Uh, well, I'll be honest, I didn't actually read the carbon article, but like what a lot of these in the levels and stuff does it too. It's a short term kind of window. You wear it for a month, you wear it for two, for 14 days, and then you, that's the biofeedback part. You learn to see like how your activity patterns for patients without diabetes, how your activity patterns change, like the way your glucose works. So it's it's a little bit different as much as like you can, you know, in a month, you can cycle through a bunch of different patients versus for diabetic treatment and monitoring, that's going to be like a, you start and you stay on it kind of thing. So highlight that um, difference in practices. It's, you know, using the same device, but the, the duration of time tends to be shorter from a cost, you know, from a cost standpoint, that, that'll change the economics of that. And then Dr. Donnett. Fascinating. What do you think, though, overall about the about the utilization of CGM, like for example, I mean, you see patients, Matt. You know, are you using CGM today in your diabetic? Uh, so, for my, for many reasons, I can't because of insurance barriers, etc. I think there's a lot of this is a strong uh, virtual care bias coming in, but there's a lot of things that we don't know and can't really measure because we just haven't had access to ability to like you know continuous longitudinal monitoring, be that heart rate variability, um, respiratory rate things, uh, continuous glucose stuff. So I think, so is the evidence out there? No. Um, could there be? Potentially. Um, so I'm actually, so that's from my standpoint, I'm interested to see like maybe when you have some of these forward looking companies um, looking at this, like maybe some insights might also come out of it. But have I seen like evidence out there for like, you know, is biofeedback better? Not necessarily. And then do my, are my patients on it? No, because the insurance blocker is like enough to not have it except for like the you know most out of control um patients of diabetes at so which now, point the cgm is not that valuable <laughs> sorry i apologize and dr donish how do you how do you how do i and then matt too how do i then so you're saying aggressive monitoring is good aggressive treatment is not i i think i agree with that but then my my pushback there is at least knowing what i know about let's say my mom or or most patients 
when there is aggressive monitoring and some people are very sometimes really intertwined with their health and may not understand the you know black and white and the gray parts of medicine they may always say you know oh my god my blood sugar is above 120 and kind of like muhammad just mentioned it gives you a little beep right that's obviously not the best uh, stimulatory feedback to get and you consistently feel like you're doing something wrong and someone without a background in healthcare may say like wow i'm screwed or something how do we then bridge that divide to make sure that aggressive monitoring does not lead to aggressive treatment because some patients not not to say it's a bad thing but some patients may say like oh my god I, this thing's going off like 30 times a day i need to be treated for this no, you can adjust the parameters um, so we yeah, we have access to them in the VA. We have criteria for use. Um, they've gotten a lot more liberal, actually, um, for us. And for uh, for me, where I found them useful um, is in more elderly patients who have hypoglycemia unawareness, um, particularly those who may live alone um, or who don't have a caregiver. Um, and so we have found them pretty helpful as blood sugars start to drop. Um, now, there you have to be careful about which one you um, Dexcom alerts for uh, lows, the like le we use a lot of Libres actually in more the sort of middle age mid-range um, sort of uh, glycemic control goals where we're trying to just get be a better handle on control. So those don't alarm. Um, so those are more retroactive, but the Dexcom where it alarms, um, where, where patients really have developed significant hypoglycemia unawareness, um, that can be really helpful. So you can start to see a trend um, before the patient has gotten too low and they can treat in advance. Um, so I think there is utility there. Um, and one episode of hypoglycemia for a patient who has unawareness um, is can be really dangerous. And, and I sort of, in this case, I guess, don't really care what sort of the evidence shows me, but if it results in a syncopal event, a head injury, an EMS bill, you know, sutures on the head, in the context of what we're going through with COVID, um, this, this is where I feel like anecdotes are powerful. Um, and I'm not much of a, a I'm typically a very evidence-based person, but I think these individual events can be um, very impactful. I've had too many patients who've, you know, bonked over in the bathroom and required stitches um, because of a sugar of, you know, 55 or lower. So I think that's where they're really helpful. Um, the Libres have been helpful worth like a, you know, 60 something year old who just has an A1C of the, the nines to 10 range. And we just haven't been able to get it to budge. And I think has been helpful to, to sort of guide where we need to add some therapies. And it's not a permanent use in that case then. So the, the Libres 14 day, maybe we order it for a few months um, and we get some ideas and then we can go back to more traditional monitoring. So I think there is some flexibility in how you utilize these devices, which is not what's being lobbied for by Carbon Health, obviously. <laughs> um, and that's not what they want to hear by, you know, from someone like me. Um, but that's how we're using them um, for our VA patients, if that's helpful. No, super and helpful. there is, the, yeah, there is sort of this, the, for the ones that alarm the Dexcom, there is this, um, parameter setting that you can sort of change when it's alarming and how often it's alarming. And then the Libre ones um, don't alarm automatically. Libre requires a smartphone where you scan it to, to get the actual reading. So it's um, the advantage of the Libre is just that you don't have to poke yourself every time you want a blood sugar reading. It's just a patch that goes on and that sits on the arm for 14 days continuously. Um, and it's much more useful in a type two diabetic um, who's smartphone savvy, like my mom wears one. Um, and she, it's just of interest for her, really. Interesting, um, I, I uh, it's Evan here, just to interject as a non-doctor. <laughs> I actually ordered uh, this service called Vary, which provides the 
the uh, Libra sensor and I'm not diabetic, hopefully not yet, but I am overweight just to track my glucose and monitor, see how it all works as far as eating goes. And it's been really eye opening and it's really, I thought pretty cheap. It's like 60 bucks a month. So I don't know. Do you see more of that? When I actually asked my doctor about it, he had no clue about Vary or the idea of me doing this proactively or anything. Maybe I need to change doctors. Yeah. So, well, no, I was gonna, Evan, Evan, that's it's, the, it's a big in, tech thing now with all the tech people. It's it's a big trend out here with the biohackers to right. to, to do this. And you'll you'll hear. Yeah, you're going to hear a lot of it, Dr. Francine, with the um, like the Kevin Rose, Tim Ferriss, Kara Swisher. All those guys are talking about it. Mm-hmm. Well, they were I have thoughts about, about that, but Francine, I was go ahead. on the levels. I, I was in the levels beta test, and I don't have a problem with that. But what was really interesting with blood sugar, but it, what was really interesting was that it told me which foods moved it, you know, the most, and which foods moved it the least, and that's eye opening. But I want to wait till they get to blood pressure treatment because I think that companies figured out a long time ago that the money was in treating chronic diseases and diabetes and blood pressure are the two most common ones. And we're going to find the same thing about high blood pressure. I'm yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I will say my only problem with levels is not what they're doing and very is not what they're doing. I think it. I will skew with Matt, which is, uh, and also with Erica in that sense, the reason why CGM makes sense is not specifically in terms of like, hey, maybe your insulin, you know, maybe your sugar shouldn't spike so much. Maybe we should be better about our diet. Um, I think it's okay to know what works for you personally, but like, uh, but you know, sh- shouldn't we first take care of the people that actually need it? Um, and you know, this is one of those industries where uh, uh, increased. Uh, demand doesn't actually reduce price that much. And so that's the other issue right now is that what it's end up, ended up doing is that, you know, platforms like Levels and Vary actually are increasing the price for people that are, and, and that's why a lot of insurance companies aren't covering it. And so again, I'm not, I'm not saying one way or the other. I'm just saying like that one, there's no evidence to prove that this actually works uh, from a biofeedback perspective. It feels nice. The tech people like to see their numbers, but they're not, you know, there's no data to show that the behavior actually changes. Um, and you know, there's also something called Hawthorne effect that we know that when people are being watched, even by themselves, they end up actually doing certain things. It's a, it's a form of bias, but, um, but I was going to say, you know, I wanted to kind of, sorry, Erica, go ahead. No, no, no. I, I just wanted to push back a little bit on what Francine said. Um, just to be clear, uh, the way our current health system is set up, money in medicine is to be made by people being sick. There's no money to be made in preventive health. Very little, actually. So um, the the motivation actually is in keeping people sick. So that there isn't a lot of money to be made in um, actually using these devices for good. Just I just want to be clear about that. Like in in gl- in widespread use by healthy people to keep themselves healthy. That isn't where there's money to be made. Um, if the money actually is to be made um, from from any part of our medical system in people being sick. Um, so none of these companies are in it for altruistic purposes. Let's just not fool. No, I don't think that's what Francine was saying. I think Francine was saying kind of the bigger point uh, around Francine, uh, you can speak for yourself. Sorry, go ahead. Did you want to respond to that before we, uh, we kind of wrap up? No, I think that's right. Because during my lifetime, you know, and I've done everything I can to control my own blood pressure, the, the targets go down and down and down. 
And I think it's got to be bullshit. They get to a point that you can't make. Yeah, blood pressure is also just a harder biologic parameter to control, particularly as people get older. So that's actually just part of physiology, um, which I think is why blood sugar has been. Yeah, it's fascinating. So, you know, kind of wanted to wrap up this entire topic, but I wanted to let people know the implications of what happens. So uh, uh, and then, you know, Prerak will take over the next story. But what we've been talking about, it started with carbon health <laughs> and how they acquired steady health which was doing this remote patient monitoring for glucose, CGM, specifically for diabetics. But then we talked about, okay, why CGM and not just use the good old hemoglobin A1C? Well, we now know, based on that article from Reuters, uh, that we can kind of pin again, if you guys would like, or you can just uh, DM yep. or follow. Actually, the best thing you can do is go to Twitter right now and follow Health News CH or go to Prerac's profile and follow Health News CH. But, because you'll see all the stories that we're talking about and all the information because you know, we want to kind of go deeper into this. But the implications of this is millions and millions of dollars have been poured into these advocacy organizations to push something called the hemoglobin A1C before, below seven. I mean, random people on the street know that your hemoglobin A1C is supposed to be, quote unquote, supposed to be below seven. But it's actually not the actual case because at that, to push that, is actually the data shows from multiple trials, some of which have been talked about on the stage, that it actually puts us in an unsafe range. And how did this happen? Well, how did we get here? Well, Aventus and Sanofi and Eli Lilly and all of these other um, uh, companies have been talking about trying to push this lower. I don't think they're actually doing it quote unquote maliciously. They've been told that, hey, this is what the data showed. But as the data changed, the advocacy organizations couldn't go against the pharmaceutical companies that actually supported them. And that, again, this is not a hate on the ADA. The ADA does great work, but it is a hate on the fact that they don't disclose that they are supported by a lot of these organizations. Or even if they disclose it, I wonder how many people would donate to the ADA had they known that the pharmaceutical companies are actually pushing it. A lot of doctors know that. But how does this affect things? Well, when the recommendations come out of the American Diabetes Association, then they get put into something called quality measures. How many of us know that doctors are actually being measured? I kid you not. On what percentage of their patients have hemoglobin A1Cs below seven? Did you know that? That's actually what's happened. It's been, it's been coded into the way we deliver care, all because of the push from the, from, you know, the pharma overlords. And so I think this is the real story. So when your doctor's saying, mm, you know, Erica, I think your hemoglobin A1C needs to be below seven, you, you now realize that there's been this chain of events that has led us to this point where the doctor is not, we just heard a physician on stage who wasn't even aware of the fact that this has been pushed from the top. And so this is the challenge that we're fighting. And, and it's okay to call it out in this instance. There are other challenges where now people will start saying, well, what about this? What about that? It's like, mm, until you have the evidence, you can't make assumptions. We don't make BS assumptions that are not based on evidence. This is clear work, incredible work done by Reuters, incredible work being done. And I, for one, believe that, as we were talking about before, aggressive tracking might be better than aggressive treatment. But again, open to feedback, but we can move on now. If people have any final word before we move on, I'm, I'm willing to do it, but otherwise we're moving on. All right, pre go ahead. 
Yes, let's do it. So we have another interesting story again, sent to me via back channel. Um, and yet again, something we've been talking about for actually a few months now. We just keep coming back every now and then. Um, and we love conspiracy stuff on <laughs> health news around the world. Obviously, we'll try to substantiate it in the best way we can. But this is, again, something that was not being talked about at all. We've, we started talking about it a few months ago, and now it's kind of been brought back up. Um, and I wanted to thank, um, uh, I forgot, I think it was um, Jocelyn who uh, back-channeled me this one. So Havana syndrome. Many of you may not have heard of it, and if you haven't, let me just give you a brief lowdown here. So Havana syndrome is this syndrome that is being more and more linked to people who are overseas and coming back with very odd symptoms. And this was initially found um, for people who are initially in Havana, unexplained, they're hearing unexplained sounds and people are getting sick. And now it's actually spreading uh, across the globe for diplomats who have been in different places in different times. And there's been large numbers of legal and financial fights have been kind of mounting because individuals are coming back with these symptoms. And uh, it seems like at this point, it seems I've, I haven't run the clinical trial on this, but it seems statistically significant based on the number of people that are coming back uh, with, with these uh, with these symptoms. Um, what kind of symptoms are they? Well, there is actually a documentary. Uh, it's an NBC News digital documentary. It says Fighting an Invisible Enemy, the Voices of Havana Syndrome. This explores the evolving U.S. response to unexplained incidents in which government employees serving in more than a dozen countries have reported a range of symptoms, including balance and memory problems, hearing and vision changes, and concussions, sometimes following inexplicable sounds or physical sensations. And despite years of investigation, the U.S. says it hasn't determined a cause or a culprit, although officials from multiple U.S. national security agencies have told NBC News that they suspect Incidents could be uh, attacks using a microwave weapon. Okay, that's <laughs> that's a little weird. Um, but all that to say, um, you know, this this is an ongoing issue. We've been talking about it, and the fact that it keeps coming up tells me that this may become a bigger and bigger deal. Uh, so, just wanted to make sure people were aware of it uh, because I, I still don't entirely know what's going on here. I don't know if anyone else on stage has any. Yeah, it's Edward. Uh, hi, good morning. Um, well, yes, we did a piece on this based on this reporting on our program just the other day, uh, focusing on one woman, a former State Department employee who has been really frustrated by the government's response to this, and she is suffering. Um, you know, we keep on doing stories about this. It keeps on evolving. Um, you know, there, we don't really know what's going on. Um, great deal of frustration. Um, you know, Andrea Mitchell, our chief Washington correspondent and, uh, you know, a, a State Department correspondent, um, has reported that, you know, there is, there are, there is some belief or some, you know, evidence, I don't want to use the word evidence, but, you know, some fingers are being pointed at Russia in terms of doing this, uh, you know, at various places around the world, including in Havana, where it, really began. Um, but it's not just American diplomats. Some Canadians have been suffering from this. So it's really quite widespread, um, you know, in that world. And it's a real problem. It just doesn't seem to be um, making any progress in terms of people's understanding of it and, and, and you know, solving the problem. That it was a sort of mass delusion psychological effect 
that, that was happening, and there was some reporting around that. I'm not, I'm not sure if that was followed through. And also insects in some of these places, believe it or not, there are certain kinds of insects that transmit, uh, you know, low frequencies that are pretty nauseating. But uh, I'm not sure if anyone's else heard that. It's fascinating. Um, I, I honestly don't know what the... Sorry, Jocelyn, go ahead. Thank you. Yeah. I think it's an insult to the diplomats to um, um, blame insects for this. It has been proven, according to the Academy of Science. I wasn't blaming it. Uh, just reporting what I what I was reading in some. Thank <laughs> you. If I may, please finish. That it was directed um, radio frequency, and sixty minutes did a, a wonderful episode on that, and um, um, functional MRI have shown that there is decreased white matter. So um, as far as um, um, it starting in Havana, according to Mark Say, the lawyer who is representing some of the diplomats, it, this, uh, he said it would be naive to think this just started. It's been going on for decades. It was first reported in the 60s, the Russian embassy um, the American embassy in Russia was bombarded with microwave. So this technology has been around for decades. Um, so the diplomats were finally given uh, permission by the State Department to speak, um, to speak out against this. And I think the government, the U.S. government, is not sharing. They're not coming clean with the diplomats. They know more about this than they're letting on. They, according to, again, the lawyer representing some of the American diplomats, he said that it would be like opening a Pandora's box, that this technology probably was developed and deployed by the U.S. government. Therefore, they do not want to um, release this information to the public. Thank you. Thanks, Jocelyn. Uh, Evan, I just wanted to give you a chance to finish your sentence as well. No, there was there was some really interesting investigative uh, journalism into different options, and there are different theories. And I think there's also, you know, China's a suspect. They they've been doing a lot of research into heat related weapons, actually, as as the U.S. You know, directed energy weapons. So, you know, there there's been tons of uh, research into all aspects of of directed energy and heat rays and heat energy. But there are many theories out there, and you know, it's it'll be fascinating to follow up. I mean, it's not just happened in Havana, right? It's happened in India and South America, yeah. right? Too, as well. So, you know, amazing. Yeah, I, I will say, usually on these stages for people that join us, and you know, we have a lot of people in the room right now. Uh, just uh, you know, we usually don't talk about things that don't have. An incredible amount of evidence. Uh, Jocelyn did mention the PNAS, uh, the uh, proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences study that looked at it and said that it was highly likely that it was a microwave energy source, and they did follow up on those items. Uh, I will say that we, who is to blame, is is perhaps less scary to me than the fact that this type of thing actually exists, and uh, you know it's worth a much deeper investigation. Um, I think we'll learn a lot more over time. Uh, uh, yes, yeah. So, I mean, at this point, unless there's any additional um, non-COVID stories, which feel free to continue tweeting them at us, as I said, we are 
almost at 500 followers. <laughs> so uh, follow along, tweet us the stories that you think would be interesting to talk about. But if uh, there's one, any, it does, there's one more. There is one. Yes. Dr. Priya, I know you have to go in T minus three minutes, but uh, do you want to share this new one? And then I'll pin the link. Sure. Yeah. So just a little background. Um, the, the, I'm a pulmonologist, so that's why this story is very interesting and exciting to me. So in March of this year, the USPSTF, which is the United States Preventative Services Task Force, updated their lung cancer screening guidelines from 2013. So just a little historical background. When we do lung cancer screening for years and years and years, we did not have a great test. We'd done multiple studies in the past where we try to do yearly chest x-rays, didn't really seem to benefit people. Then we did yearly CT scans, didn't really seem to benefit people. Then we went back to x-rays, didn't seem to benefit people. And then they did this really phenomenal, huge study where they, they narrowed the parameters for, for people who were eligible for getting a, a low-dose CT scan, so a low-radiation-dose CT scan, to look for um, nodules, spots on the lung. And then they followed these folks out and they found that they actually caught enough cancers early stage, like stage one, stage two, things that were uh, surgically curable that they saved 70,000 lives a year. And so that became the law of the land, right? Standard of care was for certain groups of people, we did lung cancer screening, and that included an age parameter, a smoking history parameter, how long has it been since you quit kind of thing. So in March, they changed them a little bit. And the reason they did this is they noticed that the way that we had determined the guidelines left out a lot of people from ethnic minorities, specifically black men and women. And so one of the things they did is they dropped the age requirement. It used to be 55 to 80. They dropped it to 50. So just adding five more years uh, to the group. And then they dropped the, the smoking history from 30 pack years to 20 pack years. A pack year is literally the number of packs per day times the number of years you've been smoking. So someone who smokes a pack a week, uh, sorry, a pack a day times 20 years, that's 20 pack years. Someone who smokes half a pack a day times 40 years, that's also 20 pack years. So th by doing this, they, they made some dramatic improvements, right? They increased the number of people who normally would have not been screened and caught cancers early um, in like, for example, black women, they, they increased it. Well, there's a very fascinating study that was just published in JAMA Oncology. And this is actually the letter for that study describing the study. And what they did is they looked at a huge database called the Black Women's Health Study. And this is like 80,000 black women who register and, and are followed, right? So their demographics, their health conditions are all followed. And what they ended up doing is they just looked within the database and they tweaked some of the parameters and they found that if you remove the, the, so one of the other parameters is if you have quit within less than 15 years, you do not qualify. And the reasoning behind that is if I have a patient who comes in and qualifies in every other way, but they just quit five years ago, they are less likely to have a tumor that will show up in a CT now, right? There's, there's a lag time to the development of cancer, meaning a cancer that can be found on CT scan. 
So what they found is, and this is again, so there's a couple weaknesses to this, right? Because this is all theoretical. They literally looked at a database, but it's very compelling. So in, in just removing the 15 years since quitting requirement for black women, they were able to further increase the number of people that were screened successfully. Sensitivity went up uh, pretty interestingly without a loss of specificity. In other words, they were able to catch more cancers without a significant increase in unnecessary procedures, right? The downside of any screening test when you're determining it is, are you going to end up putting someone through a lot more procedures like biopsies or extra CT scans to follow these spots, that kind of thing. So that's it's just very cool and exciting for someone like me. So, so very interesting. I will say it seems so interesting that that affected that population. Do we have a mechanism of why that effect, that change affects a specific population so much? Outside of just a correlation, do we know what the connection is? We there? don't know. We do know that black men and women with lower smoking histories do tend to have cancer sooner. Um, I mean, I have some speculative mechanisms, right? So we know, for example, there's something called pollution inequity in this country where um, black, black men and women are responsible for a certain amount of pollution in the world, right? And yet they are exposed to like 40% more pollution than they're actually responsible for producing. Hispanic men and women are um, are exposed to like 60% more pollution than they're responsible for uh, producing. White people are actually exposed to about 17% less pollution than they are responsible for uh, for producing. And the reason that's important is we know that pollution is actually heavily linked to increased rates of cancer deaths, lung cancer deaths, and heart disease deaths. So I don't know if that's related. It could be dietary, right? So we know that if a diet's uh, low in certain antioxidants, um, promote COPD, they promote cancer, or, or rather, that's a bad way of saying it. Diets that are low in, in these things are, uh, are associated with an increased risk of the development of lung disease. So it's all speculative. Could I, yeah, uh, great I, could I to start with? Yeah, just real briefly, I applaud the uh, updates uh, to uh, provide more equity in the screening process. In addition to what Dr. Priya just described, we are on the very near-term cusp, like one or two years, of having some really sensitive and really specific tests using circulating uh, uh, free DNA and circulating single tumor cell uh, DNA, and there are some other methods as well, where they, the problem increasingly is not the sensitivity, it's the specificity, meaning what Dr. Prio is saying, we don't want to do a bunch of unnecessary procedures on people who may uh, have a cancer but don't have a cancer. Um, and the, the additional screening procedures are only part of the burden of being too sensitive and detecting things that aren't there because the burden on the individual of being told, you know, this test suggests that you do have cancer and it might take us six to 12 months to figure out whether or not you indeed do have cancer. So those six to 12 months can be the worst six to 12 months of someone's life. Now, if they're told at the end that they don't have cancer, um, you know, it's a new lease on life and an escape from a bad diagnosis. But those six to 12 months um, inflicted at scale on a large number of people who might 
have a cancer, but ultimately don't is a problem. So these new techniques are so exquisitely sensitive at detecting the faintest traces of what might be cancer need to have a corresponding way of validating that the probability is high enough uh, to pursue it in that individual. So uh, the next couple of years are going to be a watershed, not just for lung cancer, but for many forms of cancer that are uh, where the research is, is making huge strides in terms of getting the, you know, that, that, uh, uh, Goldilocks zone of um, uh, really high sensitivity and really high specificity. So stay tuned. The, the, the research in the next two years is going to be spectacular. It's fascinating, though, because, you know, and I, again, uh, there's a, a new New England Journal of Medicine piece that Prerak was just sharing with me. Prerak, if you can pin that. You know, race is so clearly connected to so many exposures. And we know that inequities exist not only in this country, but in every country. But it's more, um, you know, we are perhaps a bit more aware of the inequities as compared to a lot of our our colleagues around the world, um, uh, and maybe a little bit more sensitive to these inequities uh, for good reason, uh, since they have existed for a long time. But what's interesting is it's a, everything is a double-edged sword. And this New England Journal of Medicine paper, Prurak, do you want to kind of go into the specifics around this and uh, we can all weigh in? Yeah, yeah. So this has been a big question. And every every so often there will be articles written like this. This was actually just published yesterday. It's on Christmas. It's a very recent study. But basically, um, according to a survey conducted more than a decade ago, medical school varied considerably in their perspectives on mentioning race or ethnicity at the beginning of case presentations. So for anyone who is not in medicine, um, we present patients to each other through this format called a presentation. So for example, if um, Dr. Donish came in, maybe I'd just say middle-aged man coming in with uh, acute chest pain that started three days ago, blah, 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 kind of just describing what happened to Dr. Donish, not that this actually happened to him. but um, the question here is, should I then say the race here? Should I say South Asian male um, before I start? Or should I say, uh, you know, where this person is from? And again, this practice varies considerably across medical schools. And the reason is because uh, some proponents argue that this information suggests initial biologic probabilities that are immediately relevant for hypothesis generation. So for example, proponents may cite genetic example. I'm taking this from the article, by the way. So this is not original thought from me at all. <laughs> For example, proponents may cite genetic examples such as sickle cell disease, far more prevalent among Black Americans than in other U.S. racial or ethnic groups, and hemochromatosis, far more prevalent among white populations than in other racial or ethnic groups. Other proponents, other proponents or supporters of including race argue that race and ethnicity should be acknowledged immediately, even if it has little diagnostic or therapeutic relevance for mo most patients because there is a benefit uh, to processing the patient's history. On the other hand, this article, if you actually read the whole thing, they actually don't support it. They give you ideas for why people may support it, but they believe that these arguments are problematic, uh, and um, the reason for it falls into two main categories. First, routine inclusion of race or ethnicity at the beginning of our case presentation reinforces the still prevalent but mistaken belief that race or ethnicity is a robust surrogate for genetic or innate biological predisposition for, to disease which it isn't, right? You, when we said earlier, black Americans are more likely 
uh, for sickle cell disease. That's actually partly because um, in Africa, the sickle cell trait was protective against malaria, right? So people coming out of Africa um, had that gene primarily because it was a good biological uh, mechanism to protect against another disease, uh, not necessarily because you know they were black. Um, and then the second um, point is immediately mentioning race or ethnicity may result in conscious or unconscious demographic or cultural stereotyping uh, that does more harm than good. Um, and so all this to say, um, wanted to put this up here because as I said, race is definitely a big issue in healthcare. It's a, it's a big part of disparities. Uh, and I wanted to hear other people's thoughts on this. Yeah, would love to hear from people, uh, especially the physicians, because we use it. So it's it's so common to say twenty six year old African American male, uh, or you know, twenty uh, five year old Asian woman. You, you, we say this as part of our reporting, right? Uh, the way that we talk to each other, the way that we bring it up. But I wonder, by putting it right up in the beginning, does that affect all of our decisions downstream? Are we actually incorporating bias? into the way we talk about patients. Uh, and, and it is a fascinating question. Would love to get John, your, and all the other doctors, your guys' thoughts and everybody else. So if, yeah, this, this is, I need to this, jump off. Would it be okay if I just gave my- Yeah, go ahead, Priya. Why don't you go first? Please, please go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Thank you. Yeah, so I, to me, the way that I view it is, I think this is less an issue of, should we present race and more an issue of, how do we use that to our benefit, right? We go into it with our own biases and our own perspectives. So when I hear the words 55-year-old African-American male or African-American woman, the things that are running through my head are, okay, this is a Black person. They are a victim or may potentially have been a victim of medical racism. So I need to be very clear about myself. I need to, I need to, as I'm examining this patient, I need to be looking within my own biases. Am I going to assume things about them because they are a black patient, right? So, so I actually use that in a way to say, okay, let's acknowledge that we were all trained and grew up in a, in a racist system of medicine. Uh, you know, and I don't mean that maliciously. I mean, it's just how we were taught, right? So I use it to direct myself and it's a delicate balance, right? When I have a young black woman in my clinic and I, and she's telling me she's short of breath and all her tests are negative and everyone else has blown her off. I have to, that's a calculus I have to make every single time. What is the real story here? Is she being blown off because she's a black woman? Is there something else going on? How do I balance making sure that I that I do the best I can to care for her without putting her through unnecessary tests and, and racking up insurance bills for her and, and potentially putting her through procedures that she doesn't need. But to me, I use it as a guideline, right? So someone, a 55 year old black man comes in and he's got really, you know, and everyone's chalking it up to really bad GERD. Okay. Well, the first thing I'm thinking is, is this actually heart disease, right? I mean, that's a really simplistic example. But to me, I, I favor leaving the, the discussion of ethnicity in so that we can, through cultural competency training, acknowledge our own biases and use that to our benefit and use it to our patient's benefit. I hope that made sense. I was kind of babbling. No, it's interesting because I wonder how, uh, you know, how, the patient would view that perspective, right? And again, uh, you know, uh, can only speak from my own lived experience, but um, it is fascinating to see 
Is it an opportunity for us to check our own biases? Or are we now putting our biases into their lived experience uh, by assuming things about what they have experienced in healthcare and so on? There's a correlation, but not you know necessarily an experience. But uh, I was hearing somebody else. Was that John? John, were you going to respond? It's me, uh, yeah, it's I was, Chandler. I was, I was going to. Yeah, sorry. John goes next and then. Yeah, um, I, I just want to say a couple of quick things. Uh, I think uh, Priya outlined the, the thought process really well, but for the benefit of those that haven't been trained in medicine, the uh, significance of these studies coming out of academic institutions is that when you're training medical students and interns and residents and fellows, um, you have a morning report where you go over new cases and challenging cases where you get the benefit of input from lots of other people. And so when they're referring to when you, you know, write a note or present it, it in such a way that race is featured, you know, this 50-year-old African-American male at the very outset, um, the risk that they're proposing is that whether implicit or explicit bias on the part of the participants, they may be less inclined to engage fully and uh, help in, in the management of that individual person that's being described. And similarly, when you send a consult to a specialist um, and do the same thing, um, the, the point they're trying to make is that you're uh, eliciting implicit bias, if not in the worst case, explicit bias right off the top. So what they're suggesting is to take the person through the thought experiment of hearing everything. And then at the end of the presentation, to be able to bring forward those issues that may be medically relevant that are based upon race, whether it's exposure to pollution or uh, socioeconomic circumstances or being first responders and much more likely to have COVID and on and on and on with all the uh, health inequities associated um, with, with race and ethnicity. And so uh, I think it's important to understand the significance of eliciting implicit bias at the very outset of the description as opposed to at the end. So it makes some sense, but ultimately you might just say, well, isn't the treating physician the one that has to uh, look inside, evaluate their own implicit bias and make sure that they're not succumbing to that implicit bias, whether brought about by medical training or from their life experiences and culture that they grew up in. But it, it, it is bigger than that because uh, healthcare is a team sport. And when you engage others and put that right at the very top, it is more likely to trigger those implicit biases that are damaging to that individual. So it makes some sense. But in the end game, um, hopefully we can have continue the kinds of practices and policies and academics where implicit bias is explicitly talked about and is more and there's explicit training and implicit bias we need more of that so that this becomes less of an issue by virtue of the implicit bias itself going away rather than the trigger for that implicit bias by placing it at the end yeah john i agree uh this is chandler um you know i think it's definitely you know we need to keep it in medical education only because we all want to provide the best care for our patients you know something simple as hypertension if somebody has hypertension, certain medications work better for an African-American, such as calcium channel blockers like amlodipine versus metoprolol. On the other hand, like if somebody's diagnosed with cancer, there's definitely diversity in terms of healthcare costs, in terms of access to care. 
Unfortunately, in America, African-Americans uh, and, and other groups are un, do not have the same level of care as uh, Caucasian-Americans. And so there's definitely an inequity there. There was a study by the American Society of Clinical Oncology, uh, which is the, the National Cancer Society, which showed that there's definitely inequities in terms of cancer care. So I really appreciate Dr. Priya bringing this to the forefront because it's not just about diagnosis, but also treatment. If you were diagnosed with lung cancer today in 2021, and you have stage four cancer, there's a flow chart of 14 different cancer treatments that you could receive. It's no longer 10 years ago where everybody got chemo. And so the ASCO study that I'm mentioning discussed access to biopsies and next generation sequencing where African-Americans and people in other uh, minority groups did not have access to this, you know, access to uh, molecular treatments in terms of targetable treatments that are personalized medicine. So this is definitely an issue. Last thing is I wanna kind of talk about what John Madison talked about. You know, circulating tumor DNA and shedding DNA is not sci-fi. I use it every single week for my colon cancer patients. If a patient is diagnosed with colon cancer, if they have stage two, stage three, I actually check their circulating tumor DNA to see if they have cancer recurrence before the CT scan. So that Yeah, and I wanted to bring uh, Dr. Janelle into the conversation. Uh, Janelle, did you have a thought on, on this topic? I saw that you raised your hand right around this time. Oh, yes. Thank you um, for bringing me to the stage. So just very quickly and from an actual African-American woman's perspective, I think Dr. Prius um, hit the nail on the head in terms of including African-Americans' history um, as a guideline. And we it certainly needs to be a precursor to treatment, right? And I've been in the healthcare field for over 20 years in the management field, but now uh, as a PhD doing more research in public health and community health advocacy and um, work. But what's being folded in and, and actually um, in my administrative uh, healthcare work, um, working a lot with clinical residents, right? And getting a lot of information on their training and the information that they're being introduced as a resident. And more and more social determinants of health is being folded into the training and that awareness and that increased um, biases are being more um, sort of elevated to the top of their training. So um, yes, it should definitely be a precursor to treatment. I think, um, again, as Dr. Prius mentioned, um, African-Americans often feel left out of the thought of how far you should go in the medical um, investigation. And we trust our physicians to know that there are particulars or healthcare particulars special to African-Americans. And so we look for that the physicians and their expertise to help guide, you know, basically our healthcare and our healthcare management, um, period. So just from a African-American woman's perspective. And um, no, we appreciate the perspective. I, I was just going to say, you know, can I play contrarian for a second? Uh, yeah. it, it'll be fun. It's a fun exercise. 100%. Let me just say up front that I'm a big proponent of taking this, account, uh, this into account for all the reasons that Priya, John, Chandler, Janelle said. But in practice and in practical terms, are we, is that how it actually goes? And, you know, I have to say that, um, you know, uh, in, in healthcare, 
what we don't talk about in the general public is around the, the, the terms that are used colloquially. And it's sort of like this well-kept secrets, but there are no secrets amongst our health news around the world family, right? And so, you know, we talk about things like frequent flyers. Uh, we talk about people, uh, you know, that are drug seeking. We talk about, there are these words that we use and, and you know, uh, sometimes you'll hear in the trauma circles around, you know, uh, you know, gunshot wounds and around race and around all of these other things that while we want to admit to ourselves that we have biases in the moments when you're in there taking care of patients, you know, it has to be just like John said, we have to be able to bring out these implicit biases and deal with them in an explicit way. But I think the argument that was being made in this New England Journal of Medicine article was around the fact that by the time that permeates within the broader population of physicians, you know, how much damage is being done by the biases that we use to drive our decisions every day. And so I, I did want to give the other side's point of view. I will say I know where I stand. I think most people in this room can hear where I stand. But there are two sides to this argument. Um, and both sides have some merit. The amount of decisions that are made, uh, to Chandler's point around, you know, not even offering certain people certain things, or or to Priya's point about saying that this is likely reflux versus heart disease, that is real. Uh, that happens in communities, and it's a fascinating challenge to overcome uh, because uh, in most physicians out in the community that are not being you know, uh, tested on these things and are not being trained on these things, these implicit biases, they stay implicit. It's the honest truth. I'm just being truthful. And I don't know if people want to comment on that. I wanted to give the opportunity for people that aren't, you know, experts in this field to, to weigh in on their opinion before we move on to the next. I mean, I, I just wanted to add... go ahead. Yeah, my go ahead. Yeah. Um, I mean, um, just back to uh, the process looking at, the EHR. I mean, the note that it's written by a provider's a professional is not the only place that we can indicate the race. Um, at least in um, the medical record, the EHR system that I have worked with, there's a patient's uh, um, uh, chart or folder or whatever you call it, it depends on uh, what kind of EHR you're using you can see uh, the demographic. And I think it's a good practice, to be honest. Uh, whatever we uh, trying to say, okay, I'm not um, uh, biased by race, uh, probably in back of our mind, as long as there is color, there is different races, racism exists. Uh, till we get to the point um, in our society, we understand every human um, beyond their uh, appearance and color, they are all human beings. So um, I think I agree with that at some point. It's just because uh, there are, if I as a professional, as a healthcare provider in different level, I need to know the race of the patient for, to administer a medication or for certain procedure or diagnosis, definitely I can access it. That's all I wanted to. And one thing I wanted to just piggyback on is Dr. Priya mentioned just how 
think she just mentioned the institution of medicine is is racist to a certain extent. Um, I, I didn't quite know what that meant until um, this year um, when I don't know if anyone has seen this. And again, I'll tweet this out for people to see the picture. Um, but, you know, there was for the first time someone drew a, a black fetus um, and it just showed to me where I was like, oh, my God, I don't think I've ever seen something like this before, because every everything that I ever was taught was to a certain extent white. All the pictures were, the patients were, everything. And the moment this was drawn for the first time, again, click on the Twitter uh, if you want to see this in detail. But the moment I saw this for the first time, I was like, holy shit, you're right. You know, like I, there's like such a lack of representation. And this is even more true in fields like dermatology, for example, where something like uh, dermatitis is going to look so different on uh, different skin types. And guess what? We've only seen one main skin type uh, for for dermatitis as opposed to others. Um, so, you know, decisions and things are changing. Um, and we're trying to slowly get more insights into these things. But I can tell you that even from an educator standpoint of getting educated, um, the first time I saw this picture, I was just very surprised because I was like, this is not something that I've ever seen before, at least not in uh, education. Yeah. And I'll have to say thank you for pointing that out, because in the African-American community, we've seen that picture. We understand the young man that actually came up with that picture. So it speaks volumes to if you were surprised and enlightened from your end, imagine how we feel knowing that for years of medical education, our representation has never been there. That's Hey, this is yeah. Chandler real quick. Uh, I just want to kind of add, uh, you know, in terms of like where we learn in medical school, like Robin's book of pathology is mostly Caucasians that are in those pictures. Dermatological atlases is mostly Caucasian. So there's definitely a need to improve medical education in different uh, subgroups, uh, including uh, race. It's, it's Edward. I have one comment that I think might be interesting to the room. Um, has anybody noticed that in television commercials, there are many more people of color uh, in, um, in commercials for pharmaceuticals and drugs than there were um, in recent years? I think this is quite striking. Um, and, you know, it, it's really quite, uh, quite amazing in a way. Um, I think this is taking place in, in the kind of commercial world in general, at least in terms of, you know, how products are projecting their audiences and who they're appealing to. But um, there is a great deal of diversity right now in what we're seeing in television advertising. So I just thought that was an interesting thing to... to... And yeah, Anna Marie, you had a thought? Um, yeah, uh, a couple things um, or on the the pin prior to this one, I mean, I'm not an MD, but I'm a researcher. And I've been, I, I know actually my own daughter's um, would case would be brought in front of a conference often when she was a baby. And, uh, you know, we're not representative of a minority community. However, I have this discussion with um, her doctors in the pediatric cardiology space um, before about how much information they give at the beginning of case conference on, on each of these children, because there is such a, a unique sort of subspecialty. And also, you know, you're dealing with the, you know, babies and children versus the, the broader adult population. And my default has always been more information is better. Right, like that's always been the my default, and, and and I think up until very recently, the default of many of the pediatric specialists 
And it could be because you're dealing with so many of these congenital and metabolic conditions that that have their their roots and their links to um, the genetic background, to ethnicity, to region of the world in which they're born. But since the headline was about saying it up front versus it being raised, and, and it, again, I'm thinking of this as almost like a real live scenario where you're in a case conference and you're raising it among colleagues, right? Are you just kicking the can slightly down the road if you eliminate those certain pieces of information in your initial presentation only to have your colleagues, again, I'm pretending I'm a fly in the room of case conference with doctors, but only to have your colleagues raise those as questions anyway, right? Like they're gonna say like, okay, we have this much information, but I'm gonna raise my hand now and say, but what about these three other things? So that I, as a clinician, can give the most robust and well thought through response to the particular case in front of me. So I just I just wanted to mention what I was thinking about as you were all sharing your very thoughtful responses to that one. On yeah. uh, on, on this one, I couldn't agree more of, about the need for greater diversity in not just medical education, but the development of technologies and med te medical technologies. And I, I can say from experience that I am on the thick of this uh, because I'm working on a, a medical ultrasound technology and we're thinking a great deal about um, interface of sensors with different uh, skin types, skin colors. And I'm also the co-PI on a project that I've been working on for about a year now, NIH funded, uh, to look at uh, pulse oximetry specifically exactly. in newborn skin and i know this has been brought up in this room previously because it's it, it sort of came to light in covid when pulse oximetry became more ubiquitously used on the front line versus just in critical care settings but um there's a great deal that has been done out there that just wasn't very widely published on the impact of skin color and opacity on uh the pulse oximetry sensors. So both uh, what's what's coming out of that beam of light and what's we're coming back in to give us that number. So um, I can't give you any sort of more information or, or results because we've just done our patient recruitment, but I'm really, really uh, interested in this area and how we can advance our thinking, not just again around medical education, but around the actual deployment of technologies that are being used uh, in, in patient patient patient-facing settings because it's so critically important. It's been such a gap in decades past. I wanted to address what Anna Marie was talking about. So again, she broke the problem down very, very well, which was, it's not about whether the demographics are mentioned ever. Uh, when relevant, they should be mentioned. The point here is uh, when you say it right at the beginning, does that color, no pun intended, the rest of your understanding of what happened, right? If you say, uh, uh, and I'm gonna, you know, and and uh, and when we talk about that, as opposed to the to the the true institutional biases that exist, even in our sensors, right? Uh, is that the right place to focus on? Are we focusing on our words and not on our actions? And I think that's what's really interesting about this this uh this topic pulse oximetry which by the way you know when people say oh if your oxygen level is below this then we're going to start you on this medication for covid versus not um we're making decisions on a pulse ox that doesn't work for people of color 
we actually know that it gives you a false uh, uh, false oximetry, uh, an incorrect ox- uh, oxygen level, oxygen saturation level in people of color, with people with darker pigment. And yet it is still used in every hospital in the world. So if they can afford it. And so this is a important topic. Thanks, Anna Marie, for bringing that up. Lala, I wanted to give you, Lala, I wanted to give you last word on this before we move on, because we have a lot of updates. Yeah, I, so go ahead, I just Lala. wanted to, I just wanted to, okay, after John, her, go ahead. after her, one other, no, 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 I want her to go first, but no, I just want to mention the ahead, clearance phenomenon, but go, go ahead. The comment no, 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 ahead, I wanted Lala. to I'll, make I'll is sort of rele- irrelevant right now. Go ahead, please. Oh, okay. Oh, okay, sure. So um, the uh, muscle mass on average in African-Americans is higher. And that leads to a higher level of creatinine in the blood, which is a measure of kidney function. And so what kidney function is calculated, there's a correction that was implemented years ago that has recently come under fire, uh, legitimately come under fire. And this kind of reflects the, the opposite side of the coin that Danish was alluding to, which is why I wanted to bring it up, because not every Amer- African-American has more muscle mass than every uh, Caucasian person, not every Caucasian or person not of color um, has a lower uh, muscle mass than the average African-American. And so what was taken as a generalization that was racially attached, ethnically attached, was used to calculate renal function. And it's come under criticism very recently and very intensively because it tends to um, compensate in ways that overestimate the kidney function for for anybody um, where their muscle mass is not driving a higher level of creatinine in the blood. So the consequence is that there have been less renal transplants recommended earlier for African-Americans as a consequence of this correction of a statistically significant difference. But when you look at statistically significant differences, it applies to populations, not individuals. And the way that that correction has been done for kidney function has been done statistically and not adapted to the individual. So it kind of gets back to the same question that Danish was alluding to is how do you do this balance um, between the statistically generated bias versus the individually relevant information. And that's what we need to get to. Oh, you guys, can I say one more thing really quick before you move on? Just because uh, I I would be remiss if I didn't. So it's a little bit of a generalization, Dr. Donish, to say like all the, we know all the pulse oximeters are are not correctly assessing the the spo2 of of people of color or based on skin opacity i think there is like actually a huge range of variability depending on the pulse oximeter uh the quality of the oximeter what what sort of regulatory um rigor those devices have gone through because we know how much garbage is out there now just as a sort of result of of, of covid right like high demand produces a bunch of stuff that can make it through all sorts of regulatory and low bar regulatory uh, to get out there into the world right so so there is like a actually a huge difference and and the oximeters that do a good job of measuring um perfusion like have an actual perfusion index indicator in them have actually shown to have a much um smaller uh field of uh, inaccuracy with skin color and, and um 
skin opacity. So I just wanted to say like, there's, I, I, I'm so eager to see more and more of uh, published research on this to sort of hone in on that. So clinicians and facilities and governments can make real decisions on what kind of oximeters they're putting out there into the world and into use. And happy holidays, everyone, if I didn't say that. Yeah, all I was gonna say is I, I agree with you and I know this is your area of, uh, of interest and expertise. There's a New England Journal of Medicine paper that looked across multiple, and I think you might be knowledgeable of this uh, 2020 uh, paper, that they looked across for, something called occult hypoxemia, which means hypoxemia that we didn't know existed, um, where they looked at arterial oxygen saturation of less than 88%, despite having an oxygen saturation of 92 to 96% on a pulse ox machine. And, you know, uh, and they looked at this specifically across multiple pulse oximeters. Are there pulse oximeters that are looking at those perfusion measures like you were mentioning? Sure. But when you compare it to, uh, you know, uh, people of light pigmentation to people of dark pigmentation. And it actually kind of speaks to another big part, which is there are areas where race actually matters and it actually has an impact. And there are areas where race serves as a surrogate for other things that matter. And so John mentioned one of them with creatinine and body mass, uh, uh, muscle mass. Uh, but you know, there's so many different areas where we have seen this, but there are other areas where the way that we treat patients of a certain race in a certain country uh, also have a direct impact or where people of a certain race. So like, should we be looking at the race itself as the, the best marker that we have? Or should we be looking at surrogate markers that sort of go beyond just the the color of skin and go into so the inequities that actually exist. And perhaps that allows us to be able to go beyond this. It's a, it's a fascinating question and it makes for, uh, for long conversations and we've got to move on to COVID now. So, you know, I wanted to make sure that we, we address COVID. So much information has come in. I will say I'm feeling better about Omicron this week than I did last week. But I just want to, you know, the TLDR is, is the data has been pretty positive, but I will tell you, that I have many colleagues on stage that will say, mm, is it too early? Is it too early to make that, uh, make that determination? Well, we're gonna walk through all of the data. So if, you're, if you like what you're hearing and you wanna follow along, I want you to go to health, go on Twitter because we're gonna be posting all of the articles that you're gonna see pinned up and other things that we're talking about right now, including the false oximetry data from New England Journal that uh, Anna Marie and I were speaking about, uh, you know, we're going to be, we, we put everything on our Twitter account. It's health news, CH as in clubhouse, but health news, CH, and, or you can go to Prereq's profile and hit that up. So Prereq, let's get started with COVID. We have a ton of stuff on COVID. Like you mentioned, oh, this has uh, yeah. been a big COVID week in terms of the actual information, not what yeah. people are saying, but what is actually being, being. Yeah, dude, I couldn't find non-COVID related health news at all this week. There was only health news around COVID. All around the world, it was all COVID all the time. So let's start with the big highlights, everyone. Um, and so, you know, we'll give you the big overview and we'll kind of zone in on different things. So according to, so this is, and we'll start initially with the US because as always, US always seems to be get, getting screwed the most. <laughs> we just can't handle it. Um, according to the CDC in the week ending November 27th, the Delta variant accorded for virtually all transmission in the country. The week ending December 4th, Omicron, I, I, we need to figure out how to pronounce this. I need someone to teach me how to pronounce this. I'm pretty sure it's not Omicron, but 
It made up 0.7% of COVID infections. It climbed to 12.6% in the week ending December 11th. And the week ending December 18th, it reached 73.2%. That was last week. The, the data is still out on where it's at right now. But I can tell you, I do some COVID research at Yale. Um, Delta's doubling time at Yale for cases was five to seven days. Omicron's doubling time at Yale. Um, this is hot off the press. I mean, we haven't published it yet. Based anecdotally on what we're seeing in the hospital, it's two to three days. At the beginning of December, virtually all cases were Delta. Then we started seeing, I think, our first. Uh, we have. I don't think we have a f official Omicron case yet, but we're slowly starting to see cases. And we had over 150 admissions um, overnight in one day recently, which was by far one of the highest records. So that was um, all that to say. The prevalence seems to be increasing, uh, and Omicron is now the most common variant in the U.S. Um, Dr. Donish, any insights on this? What's interesting here is not only, so again, I'm going to give the same metaphor that I give every week. So in that way, at least at some point, it starts making sense. And the metaphor that I gave was the pie and slices of the pie. So we knew that Omicron was, represented a small slice of the pie, but we were saying not only is it going to become more of the pie, but the pie itself is going to get bigger. And then there's other metaphors around hospitalization and death that we're going to go into, but Omicron is not only becoming the the dominant variant, the look at the cases. The case numbers are skyrocketing. And partially, it's because it is incredibly transmissible. Partially, this is because I think there's a lot of COVID fatigue out there. And partially, I think it's because we've just stopped masking. <laughs> uh, we just stopped masking. And uh, we're seeing the, this, this, the cases literally skyrocket. So now the next question is, well, what are the implications? Well, so uh, Prerak, let's jump into that. Did anybody have any well, uh, those point are about still, the doubling time of the Those cases? are still Omicron projection, projections. It's not actual data. I think it's really important for the audience. Yeah. So just to be clear, in terms of, uh, in terms of actual data, yeah. So Prerak, do you want to walk through the actual data, just to be clear? Yeah. I mean, I can. So if you read this article... Um, what it's saying, based on like what we said, it's making up uh, 73.2% of um, COVID infections at the week ending December 18th. So that but was- But those aren't, those aren't isolates. I'm not, I'm not being contrary. I, those are oh, not, please, yeah, please. those are not um, sequencing isolates. That's now cast projection data from the CDC. And I think that that's just really important. That's modeling. Um, and so, and also based well, on the, what we're seeing with infections, it's behaving like it's Omicron. I mean, the, the doubling time and the number of infections and the way we're seeing lines at testing and how many people you know personally who are infected, it's behaving like Omicron. But the CDC doesn't have actual sequencing data that they've released for these weeks. It's still now cast data. If you go to the CDC website, these are still sequencing projections because we're so bad at sequencing actual samples in the U.S. We're sequencing but these such projections. Just sorry, I just want to. Uh, I just want to uh, clarify. Also, the modeling is being done based on sampling. So, Matt, you know, like it's not. Like no, no, no. And they've been patients, pretty good. Patients. I yeah. just think it's important to exactly like we've been like. I think the 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 when we were projecting with Delta, they were like less than three percent error. So on these same modeling that we knew was occurring, I just want to be clear that people understand that this is based on actual high quality evidence. This is not just the CDC. No, no, no. Of numbers. course, this is based. 
Okay. Yeah. So just want to make sure, because again, people don't realize what Erica is referring to, just so everybody knows, is that there are certain countries out there where they're actually doing sequencing of everybody that has a positive test. And so those numbers are not based on modeling. That's the actual prevalence. And so when we're hearing about countries like Israel that is doing it, I guess, right in some ways, um, they're actually basing this completely on actual knowledge, not based on sampling and sampling a small percentage of the population because that introduces I just mean, I think pe people get their results and they assume that we're sampling, that we're sequencing their sample and that we're, you know, we're basing these numbers based on their sequenced sample in the U.S. And Which then begs the question, can we rely on this data? I will say that some of the things that affect the data quality is the doubling time. Uh, you know, the, the faster cases go up. So let's walk through why this is important, what Erica's saying. So. It's important because one, because people are so mildly symptomatic and you know, of, of, uh, several people have brought this up, so I'm gonna bring it up. We don't have evidence to back this up, what I'm about to say, okay? This is speculation. So because people are so mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic, we're seeing home testing and home testing is not, if you become positive at home, what percentage of people are actually reporting to the authorities that they were actually positive. So that means that a lot of the, the data is not being reported. The second part is if you turn out positive at home, are you really going to go out there and give your, uh, give, give some uh, samples uh, so that people can do sequencing? The answer is probably not. And so we're actually seeing incredible underreporting, probably, uh, of cases. Uh, so the fact that these case numbers are so high. I will say, Erica, you know, looking at modeling, the modelers are taking into account a few big, big factors to your point. And again, maybe Matt can weigh in since he's a clinical informaticist, but, you know, they're taking into account, are we sampling enough people to be able to have confidence in the, the model? The second thing is, are we, uh, are we taking into account what we've seen in other countries that are doing a better job of sequencing than we are? And then we're taking all of that all those variables and coming up with a model that has a certain level of confidence. Matt, I don't know if you've been keeping up with this, uh, but you know, do you have any, any sense of how accurate these models could be in terms of, because it's being widely reported that 73% of new cases are Omicron. Do you have any sense on this? Have you heard anything from other people on this? Would love to get you. Matt, are you there? If not, John, if anybody else or Erica, if you wanted to weigh in more, but one. Yeah, I'll, ju I'll, I'll just say that, yeah, the qualification that I forget who it was that gave that these are model projections, not actual uh, sequencing measurements. That's an embarrassment to the country that two years into it, we're still not doing the sequencing like the UK or Denmark or uh, many other countries. And so they have to rely on models. But the doubling time for Omicron, which is how Katherine Johnson taught us to pronounce it, and she uh, is of Greek heritage. Um, I don't, I don't think it's going to catch on. So I think most people are saying Omicron, um, but its doubling time is so much faster than Delta, and Delta was what was happening before. Is that the the uptick in the uh, all statistics is such that it is relatively safe to assume, based upon the difference in doubling time 
that these, this big surge is in fact Omicron, that it is in fact overtaking and displacing Delta. And it would be hard to believe any other projection coming out of a model because, you know, garbage in, garbage out. We put into the model two-day doubling time versus five-day doubling time. We look at the statistics and we say, oh, this is Omicron. So it, it's a tautology in a sense in that the the assumptions and the inputs and the outputs are all directly related. But I think it's a very safe tautology in this case because the difference between the rate of spread of Omicron and Delta is so vast um, that what we're seeing now is so different than anything from Delta. And the what little sampling we have is good enough, I think, to validate it. So I think we do have to be cautious in using model projections as opposed to real data. It'd be better if we had real data. But I find no fault with the projections whatsoever uh, in terms of the probability of them being accurate and just assume that what's out there is 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 predominantly Omicron. Uh, can I add something? I mean, I can uh, also um, um, add on that. What we see on the ground in front line is the same situation. We do the POC for surveillance and or whoever has the symptoms. And when the POC positive, most of the time, especially in the past two or three weeks, we haven't been able to keep up with the PCR. If somebody is POC positive, they have to quarantine uh, themselves and stay out of job. Or if there is a patient, we go through the procedure. But also in the community, my daughter's school, probably uh, two-thirds of school was out. One classroom, they just had two students and um, it's been really bad. I haven't seen the um, rate of infection so fast rising since COVID started, and we didn't have much of a control over the testing and all that. These days, it's just, it just everywhere you go, I mean, in, in even the household um, and the area that uh, I'm aware of that they had really good uh, practice in terms of uh, infection prevention is still we have seen positive cases rising, but thankfully they are not that severe. Yeah, I just I wanted Danish if I could make one point. Absolutely, go ahead. Yeah, so um, there's a study that's been much neglected that came out of Hong Kong about two or three weeks ago showing that the affinity and the replication rate of this virus in the upper respiratory tract is phenomenally uh, more aggressive than any prior variant. But the, the replication and the binding in the uh, lung parenchyma in the, in the portion of the lung that is uh, you know, causing the hospitalization and death is significantly less um, than it was um, with prior variants. Now, if that, that hasn't been, that was a pre-publication, it hasn't been corroborated, it needs to be corroborated. But that would biologically explain, potentially, why it's spreading so much faster than anything else, but not causing the same percentage um, of hospitalizations and, and death as, as prior variants. But to Danish's point, you know, a smaller percentage of a much bigger number means more hospital overwhelms were there. The point I want to add on top of all that is that we still won't know for another month or two what the prevalence of long COVID is. And hopefully, hopefully, uh, but hope is not a plan, hopefully we will find that uh, the long COVID has been diminished by some of the same mutations that made Omicron more contagious 
and perhaps somewhat less virulent than its predecessors. But until we have those data for people to say, oh, this one's not nearly as bad as the last one, and we should just let it roll through all of the Barrington Declaration, which was nonsense and still is nonsense, um, because the long COVID tail for this pandemic uh, may impact more lives um, in, in, in serious ways by a, by a huge factor compared to those who end up dying from it. So until we have data on long COVID, we should treat this variant like every other variant in terms of uh, masking and isolation and caution and precautions and travel restrictions and how many people sit down at a table and eat with masks off at the same time for how much time with what distance between them. We need to be very aware of the fact that long COVID is a really big deal with all prior variants. And until proven otherwise, we should assume that Omicron it doesn't work. No. What do you mean? Yeah, sorry, there seemed to be, Erica, I think you got a hot mic for a second. Um, so what I was, I, I think, let, let, we're gonna get to hospitalizations and deaths. I don't know if Matt's back, but if not, totally understand. I think there were barking dogs in the <laughs> I, 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 I can weigh in real quick. Um, I mean, the other things, one, happy to talk on the modeling, but it, I feel like that would bore people, so I, I'm more than happy to hold off of that. The other piece too, though, is that like variants beget variants, right? So regardless of if it's more or less, um, higher you know, rates of hospitalization and death, the more that it's out there, it's everything is probability. So the higher number, just baseline number of variants uh, or just uh, Omicron is out there, the higher chance for a new variant to emerge. So I think for that reason in and of itself, it's worth masking and just trying to decrease it, even if it's not as, um, it seems like it's not as virulent. But again, if you just have millions of people infected, everything is a probability and the chance of it having a new variant off of this uh, just the question becomes, though, in a normal pandemic, this has been perhaps the the pandemic that is, you know, all pandemics are humbling, but holy crap, uh, I don't think uh, there's ever been a pandemic that has been recorded this closely or been as humbling for for everybody involved. Um, I mean, as this 2022 one. starts in like three days, dude. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> this yeah, is and it's a COVID 2019, right? COVID 19. Yeah. So, uh, so what I was going to say was that. So let's let's walk through. So I wanted to walk through this in order. We're going to get to hospitalizations and death, guys. We're going to get there, but I wanted to make sure that we talked about cases. So one, the proportion of cases based on modeling seems to be the, that seventy three percent of new cases. Are, uh, are expected to be Omicron. I can tell you, we're gonna see that the large majority of cases that are gonna be out there are gonna be Omicron by the next week. But we'll see, you know, this is all speculation. There's not enough data yet. Uh, based on modeling, that's what you would expect is that the large, large proportion of cases will be, uh, will be uh, Omicron. Okay, so then the second point is, okay, now that the proportion of cases is Omicron, how are the total number of cases going up? And so uh, this article by, uh, by uh, kind of quoting Dr. Fauci was an important one because the point that he was trying to make was that we're going to see that COVID-19 is going to continue to surge as it becomes more infectious or more transmissible. We're going to see this go not only in the U.S., but across the globe. And, you know, at this point, 
we're at about averaging around 150,000 cases uh, uh, in terms of a weekly average, and we're probably going to go higher. Now, do I, do I think that's likely true? Sure. The, the, the point of the matter is that we now know that prior infection or the worst words that I ever hear are natural immunity. All immunity is natural, technically. So, uh, but infection, infection mediated immunity, or infection provided immunity, or whatever you want to call it, immunity from infection does not protect you from this variant. It just it it barely does, very very little. And so, prior infection with any of the variants, even Delta, has very little to do in terms of in terms of reinfection. Now, we do have some data from South Africa and others where we've seen that perhaps having recent infection and having high antibody levels has cross-reactivity to actually preventing future uh, severe infections. And we saw similar data from boosters. And so, you know, at the end of the day, we do have some, and this is the hard part, okay? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna lay out the case for both sides. If I say something wrong, people can interrupt and correct me because I'd rather be correct than uh, then just keep talking. So what we know from the South African data is that they had very mild disease, very low hospitalization rates, very low death. Uh, and until now, we haven't seen, you know, it's still early on long COVID. So we're not even going to talk about long COVID yet. We'll talk about it in the next couple of weeks. Right now, I we mean, don't have enough data. Is it over in South Africa, the, 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 the peak, the wave, as it were? Yeah, the peak, the peak has, has gone down significantly. It was actually, it looked more like a spike to what, John was saying it was really it was like a vertical line, right, John? And then la la last down. last weekend they had zero cases because they stopped reporting for the weekend. So we need to be very careful about the reporting infrastructure and the numbers coming out of South Africa. It looks like it may have peaked, but um, if anyone else has better data on the stage and wants to bring it, please do. But there's been note made of the fact that there are artifacts of uh, reporting that have uh, overestimated uh, the decline in Omicron in South Africa. Regardless, the, the point still remains, which is if there's even underreporting of cases, the percentage of hospitalizations would have been higher. So we do know that hospitalizations have been very rare. It's, there's actually two big reasons, some of which are one really, really big reason. Um, uh, but let's let's make them two reasons, one, two potential explanations. How about that? Or maybe combine their explanation. So explanation number one, Omicron's just milder. That's explanation number one. And perhaps that's true. And that's okay. The early data shows that it is definitely, it is it appears to be milder than Delta. The early data is showing. But explanation number two could be just as important, if not more important than, than number one, which is, that might explain why it's milder or might add to why it's milder. It's either inherently a milder disease and or South Africans actually were seropositive like nobody's business. They just had their peak of Delta. And so they all had antibodies that were just brand spanking new. It's as if they all just got, you know, big boosters in antibodies. And it if you look at the, the actual wave before the Omicron wave, it was like literally a few months, not even a few months, I think it was a few, yeah, a few months before this wave of Omicron.
And so they were seropositive. That means that they had antibodies in their blood. And there's and, one more, Danish. What, the, and the other, the other factor is it's a much, much younger population with much lower levels of comorbidities yes. that lead to more hospitalization and death. So the two, the two uh, factors are that they did, as you describe, have very high seropositivity to Delta. So they recent, recent infection, um, which may not provide protection of the, of the type that they experience with Omicron when the next wave of Omicron hits them. So be wary of that. The second th thing about the demographics is we see profound differences in hospitalization and ICU and intubation and deaths based upon age and comorbidity throughout this pandemic. And the, if you look at the demo, you can go Google the demographics there. It's dramatically different than the UK or Denmark or the US. And so let so now we're going to move past this Fauci story and we're going to move into what what's happening. So again, as the pie continues to get bigger, even if it's a small sliver of the pie that get hospitalized, as the pie gets bigger, faster and faster and faster, one percent of a hundred thousand versus uh, you know point one percent of a hundred million, you still have more hospitalizations, and it's something that we just inherently. You know, humans, we think linearly, but viruses expand exponentially. And that is what's happened in this pandemic over how many times do we have to be hit across the head to say, you know what, maybe this time we'll go about it a little bit differently. And to what Matt said, look, the probability is that any future variants will be potentially, uh, that, that usually in a pandemic, Variants that arise tend to be less virulent. We've seen otherwise in this, you know, look at Delta, it was more virulent. So, you know, we have seen virulent being just more severe uh, um, in terms of our response to it. So, it, it, this is not a given, but more replication, aka more infections or cases, leads to more issues with the virus as it replicates. It's just not very good. It's, it's, it's like, you know, it's, it's literally making copies of itself, but it's really bad at it. And it makes mutations every time it copies itself in every person. And then all these people are making all these copies, which then leads to more variants. And so what I will say is that um, we just don't know where this pandemic goes. I think anybody that claims that they know that this is the end of the pandemic is probably making a ton of assumptions that are not based on actual evidence. But at the same time, do we think from the data that we got, and so the last piece of data is around hospitalizations. But before we go down into hospitalizations, I did want to call out the healthcare workers because I don't know if you all saw this, but a couple of days ago, uh, they changed the, uh, I don't know if you can link this prereq, but they changed the, uh, the requirements for positive cases amongst healthcare workers. Uh, and so as prereq loads that up, you know, when you get a COVID positive, when you're COVID positive, usually they would make you, depending on the state, they would be 10 to seven days, seven to 10 days, depending on which state you're in and which organization you're at. But that was, you know, uh, that was sort of the, the approach that was being taken. Now, because of the fact, and you know, so people are saying, well, you know, the hospitals are empty. No, they're not. Talk to Erica, she'll, she'll talk, she'll let you know how empty the hospitals are. They're not empty, okay? So. Uh, the hospitals are struggling so much with staffing shortfalls amid this 
pandemic that is raging, even a small sliver of patients or people who are positive are ending up in the hospital, but it's still overwhelming our pretty crappy healthcare infrastructure. Um, and, and so these shortages are leading us to make some decisions that I don't know how I feel about it. But the decision is now healthcare workers are going to go back if they, if it's been five days. So who pays the price? Who pays the price? It's, I will say in this situation, prove me wrong that healthcare workers are not paying the price here. We don't even have time to get better. <laughs> I mean, this is absolutely, this has to be sort of like the final, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I don't want to over, because I've been talking to my colleagues and a lot of colleagues around the country are saying, this is just, this is just another great example of how physicians have been treated for years and years. And, and uh, Erica, I would love to get your thoughts first. Well, but I don't want to go off too much, but I'm going to turn into like the angry face emoji. There's this and the AHA saying that you don't need to wear PPE for resuscitation all coming out um, this same week. Um, I, I just think in, two years into this pandemic, if anyone hopes to have medical staff left to take care of them for COVID or other things, um, we need to rethink how we are treating healthcare workforce. This isn't just physicians. This is just sort of broadly healthcare workers, this guidance. Um, I, I mean, I'm not inclined. This is literally my job right now is, is managing our workforce at the hospital um, where I work, which is not my usual job, occupational health. And um, I'm not inclined to bring anybody back early. Like you get this infection, you deserve to have the time off that's appropriate to recover. Uh, before we expect you to return. Not to mention, like, what kind of outcomes are we expecting then to bring people back early when they're potentially either still contagious or just not feeling well? Um, I feel like we're then asking for errors to be made um, at work um, when they're then responsible for patient care. So I just, it's a lot. It's a lot to take in, and I don't think it's... I just want to read the headline directly. Uh, and Dr. Donish, I think my issue with this is not necessarily the change, but the fact that this change was prompted by shortages. That's like ridiculous, right? Like it's like you could you've had like years or if not months to look over what's the best time and how we should shorten it. But to shorten it right when you're seeing like, okay, let's read the headline, right? It says, with hospitals in some areas struggling with staffing and shortfalls amid a nationwide surge of COVID-19 cases, the US CDC revised its guidelines Thursday to recommend that healthcare workers who contract COVID-19 um, you know, can return to work five days after uh, symptoms first appear, assuming they're, they're not as symptomatic. The fact that it's, I mean, the fact that that was prompted by shortages in healthcare uh, and not instead by the fact that, you know, oh, maybe we don't need to be quarantining for seven to 10 days. Maybe we need to look at this again. It just seems very misguided. It's almost like, Oh, we're going to change recommendations because it's kind of going to help us solve another problem, as opposed to did, based on did hospital uh, did hospital administrators fund that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't yeah, even know like, if there was a yeah, study yeah. behind this. Yeah, <laughs> there's no studies behind this. There's no data. I mean, unless you guys know of actual data that supported that this was the right move. This is 100%, Mohammed. What you said, which is this is a this is people that don't uh, that don't know what uh, Matt. Uh, you know, I, I'll stop there. I want Matt to weigh in, and then 
I mean, the, the one other piece that I'll go off of what Prerock was saying was this is a reactionary move, right? Kind of everything has been more of like reactive, not proactive, like it should be. This is very similar to like the it's fine to wear bandanas on your face if you're working in a healthcare setting if you run out of other supplies, right? This, we, we saw this kind of earlier in 2020. Um, it's a similar thing where we're kind of in like mitigation strategy again, which is nuts given that we've had so long to study and like work on supply chain issues and just like staffing issues around this. Um, so that being said, except there's no data around it. Shortening it is probably safe to Erica's point about it. Are you going to be spreading it? That being said, the timing of this is purely out of reaction, not out of, um, <laughs> anything else. Well, and that's the thing, right? So now we've got a government that's saying our government is saying that it's okay, by the way, for you to go back to work. But then somebody that's working hourly that actually relies on the income can't go back to work. Isn't that kind of nuts? I have to, I, you, we have to say we're sending mixed signals again. This is bandana gate all, all over again. You know, like we, we, <laughs> well, I'm just saying, you know, like this is ridiculous. And I think that healthcare workers, you know, again, um, I don't think, I, I mean, at some point, We've got to start comparing how healthcare workers are being treated to a lot of the atrocities that we saw with the industrial revolution. Like the, we, the, there was this mandate, we had to produce, we had to do this and who pays the price. And I think that's, what's nuts about this is that healthcare workers are just like, this is, hold on, what? So I'm, even if I'm not, you know, because at the end of the day, think about that hourly worker that can't go back to work, even though they're completely asymptomatic for 10 days, it's affecting their bottom line. It's affecting their, you know, whether they can balance their check at the end of the month. That is a true reality. What do you think happens to that person when they hear that? No, 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 no. For healthcare workers, it's okay. So then suddenly they'll say, well, why for them and not for me? And this Could brings I get... an incredible amount of uncertainty. John, one last thing I was going to mention, and then I want to, I want to hear from you is around the, the colleagues that we're hearing from, how many of us have heard from colleagues that are like, this is absolutely insane. I'm not feeling well. And now people are taking unpaid leave. People are, are having to take a paid time off uh, that, that you know, they've been saving so that they can go in and take care of patients when they don't even feel comfortable. Five days? How, uh, give me the evidence. Somebody give me the evidence. John, I, I'll, I'll hand it off to you. Yeah, I, I, I just this is just yet another example of policy being driven by statistics and not localized to an individual circumstance. So what I would say is that much much of what you described is true and um, re really, really challenging to justify. But there is a use case that that is entirely justified. And I've seen this with with, you know, previous flu pandemics where uh, not pandemics, but uh, epidemics of flu, where um, there simply weren't enough healthcare workers to take care of people, or, where people were sitting in gurneys in the hallways without being seen for 24, 36 hours because there was simply no one to, who, who could catch their breath enough to stop and say, are you still alive? I've seen that with my own eyes. And so the use case that I, I, I want to be careful not to throw this baby out with a bathwater because there's a lot of bathwater as you characterized it. The baby in all this is if you've got a hospital situation in a region where they don't have any 
capacity, not because they don't have the furniture, the beds to put people in, but because they don't have enough nurses or physicians who are who are both willing to work and feeling up to working, um, then th you have you have a crisis. So to take someone who is PCR positive, feeling perfectly fine, willing to spend all day taking care of n nothing but COVID infected patients, the, the cost benefit analysis of allowing a masked and gowned physician who is PCR positive, but feeling perfectly well to take care of people who otherwise would not be seen, that is the baby in all this bathwater. So it may not be the way the policy is going to be implemented. It, there, there may be some really stupid interpretations of it, but that is the one baby where you can make a case that a COVID-infected physician who is willing to and able to work with a mask and a gown, and there's no one else to take care of a flood of patients and hospital overwhelm, that that, that, that could be valid. But the other, the other bathwater you described, I totally. I don't know, John. I don't know. I've got, I've got to say, like you said, the implementation of it, from what I'm hearing from my colleagues, is very, very different. And, you know, I do wonder, for people that have a loved one in the hospital, how comfortable do they feel about the hospital potentially being, you know, like, would they want, if they had, are they going to be doing disclosure for patients? Are, are we going to disclose to well, patients? I, I, no, embedded in my uh, use case for the baby in the bathwater was they're taking, they're only taking care of um, COVID patients so that the chances of them infecting an already infected COVID patient are inconsequential. So that, that was part of the, That's the baby use case. Um, so no, I don't think that someone should be going in for a routine colonoscopy and treated by a physician who had a PCR positive the day before. I totally, I totally agree with you on that. I'm just saying, I'm, I'm just saying a willing and able, per, feeling perfectly well physician who can treat COVID patients who otherwise would not receive care because of hospital overwhelm. That's, it's a very restricted use case. So another question that comes to mind is, were there other alternatives to CDC saying this? Do other people have thoughts on what they could have done instead of changing this timeline? Because sometimes it's easy to make to make people feel real bad about their decisions, but if you don't have an alternative, and Matt, you kind of implied that there were, wasn't that many other alternatives, but I, I don't know if you actually believe that. Does anybody else have thoughts on possible alternatives we could have done to actually, instead of telling people, uh, you know, their healthcare workers to come back early? Uh, and not rest, like Erica was mentioning, which is totally fair. That's exactly what they're saying. It's like, hey, you might not be actively infecting people with COVID, but you know how, like, when you have a cold, you can get a couple of days off in any other job, uh, but not you, healthcare worker. Healthcare heroes, here we go. Uh, Erica, anybody else? Do you guys have thoughts on what else they could have done? Is there anything? Because we do have a shortage. Um, I mean, well, may I just add, sorry. Go ahead. You know, I was surprised where these shortages are occurring. Uh, from what I read, it's like South Carolina, North Dakota, West Virginia, and Rhode Island. And um, the U.S. Army did send in um, healthcare workers, I know, that may not have made a dent. 
but I was just surprised as to where you would expect, like New York City and other big um, places like that. I think just making more resources, like, I just think we need to, if they do want this five-day turnaround, there needs to be more, like, at-home testing available and uh, the ability to know your status more readily as opposed to just going back right away. <laughs> just kind of seems like you're shooting arrows in the dark. Or kind of like what uh, John mentioned, I think actually uh, COVID individuals taking care of other COVID individuals could be a viable solution. I had not thought of that before. Uh, but yeah, maybe not having them in other parts of the hospital. I don't think that's that's probably good. This is Sandra. If I could jump in and comment, is when you said healthcare heroes, I think that is so important. And rather than having a decree and feeling like I must go back to work, I'm not feeling well, uh, and on top of feeling stressed, burned out, exhausted, questioning your value, you're constantly feeling like you are undervalued, what you're doing isn't making a difference, and often you aren't respected uh, in terms of the work that you're doing, and so if it's if it's message that you are important, that this is an important mission and purpose, and you have value, and we're going to treat you with respect and dignity that you deserve for all the years of training you have and your commitment to service, then I think that it's it can be uh, something that, as we're talking about the ramifications of treating just COVID patients, but if you're coming back to work because you're forced to, and you're already feeling undervalued and disconnected from your work, then that's only going to increase compassion fatigue. Absolutely. I will, Matt, did you have a thought before I? Yeah, no, I, I think the other thing that people have hinted at this is basically it, it's the what's the letter of the law and the CDC can kind of word it. However, it's really how does your individual institution craft policy based on that recommendation? I think that's the rub. The tough part, and I agree the way that it's worded with the CDC guidelines is it can be more of a forcing function than a because I, I remember earlier in the pandemic, there were docs that were on the sideline saying, I feel fine, put me in. I think now that's changed, you know, the, about a year to uh, nine, nine, nine months to a year after that. Um, but I, again, it's, it's, you're not forced to come back. You can come back as soon as five days. Um, but a, a lot of it comes down to hospital policy, I think more so than how the CDC. I just think that now I'm going to, okay. The goal is not to cause controversy. Uh, the goal here is to talk about all the options on the table. So option number one, is send military healthcare workers to go help. But I have a feeling that they probably are needed to take care of the Omicron outbreaks that are happening in the military right now, which is also skyrocketing. Um, but, um, you know, the, uh, the other side of it is, yeah, more healthcare workers, reducing the constraint of supply of healthcare workers. Great, that is one clear option. Perhaps they should have done that. And uh, perhaps we should have actually pushed for that earlier on. Um, uh, and maybe that should have been the first measure before just throwing it onto the doctors and the nurses and everybody else, you know, because they keep calling us healthcare heroes, but they don't act like it. <laughs> uh, and, and it's always, it's, you know, it's always down to that. The second is perhaps that was the point behind things like vaccine mandates and others, because we're actually, because as John mentioned, we have enough COVID patients in the hospitals right now that you could actually have COVID doctors taking care of COVID patients or COVID nurses taking care of COVID patients. But is that really good healthcare? 
are we going to be the sharpest we can be when we're actively dealing with, uh, with, or, you know, as John mentioned, much better than I did, which is they are COVID PCR positive, but they are asymptomatic and they're feeling great and they're doing fine. That is the ideal case scenario. And Matt said that, hey, the big hospitals and all the hospitals or what I call the legacy healthcare system can, can interpret this however they want. This is not a mandate. This is a recommendation. But, you know, Mohammed kind of mentioned it and I'm just going to say it. You give administrators an inch and they'll take a mile. And that's just how it is. I think they will say, hey, you don't need more than five days. That's what the CDC says. And depending on the hospital, they will get every, because are they really going to pay you for the time <laughs> uh, that you're taking off? Uh, if, you, if you say, hey, it's been two weeks and I still feel like crap, are they going to let you stay out? Some hospitals will, but some that are really struggling may not. And that's the honest truth of it. I'm just being as honest and forthright as I can be. That's when you get a, so, that's when you get a doctor's note and just send it yourself, right? You're like, yeah, my doctor's saying uh, <laughs> a little bit, few more days, sorry about <laughs> but that's not, but that's not actually how it works, right? Like in the middle of a crisis, everybody that the problem that still needs to be solved is the shortages. And so then the question becomes, well, had we had vaccine mandates and everybody was boosted, then perhaps we wouldn't get in, be in this problem to begin with. Eh, is that actually true? If the vaccine mandates were out, none of the vaccine mandates actually mandated boosters. And so is that actually true? That's sort of the other sort of big question that, that's going up in my head. But I actually don't see. And so now that I've crapped all over the CDC, which is probably not a good thing to do anyway, I have to say, what other, no one has given me any good alternatives. Is there a good alternative? We can all talk about problems. Do we have a solution? Well, isn't, aren't we supposed to take a science-based approach to all of this? What was the original 10-day reason for quarantine what was the science behind 10 days or was that just a number taken out of out of thin air or or been being overly cautious or what was that i have no idea thanks yeah it was uh it was partially based on the fact that you're infectious and your viral load peaks this is a good point evan see asking the best question so the the, the viral load peaks at you know, at a certain date, and then you're still infectious or above a certain threshold. Uh, and they said that, hey, around 10 days, we're pretty confident that you're not infectious anymore. Because the goal was to reduce uh, healthcare worker to patient or healthcare worker to healthcare worker, uh, or worker to worker, or person to person transmission. So quarantining was seen as a way to do that. What's happened, and this is actually interesting, is as more variants have popped up, those variants are becoming more and more transmissible earlier and earlier in the course of disease. I wonder if that went factored into their decision making, that perhaps we saw the peak and fall of viral load earlier. Does anybody know about that data on Omicron? I actually don't know. I don't think I've actually looked at that. Has anybody actually looked at the, the viral replication data in Omicron and whether it happens early on in the, I'm assuming just like Delta, it's, fa it's, it's, it's it, the viral, the peak viral load happens early on in the course of the disease, but I actually don't know that for a fact. Does anybody know that? And if we don't know that, what you can do is go to health news CH and we'll put something out around that. Cause I actually have not seen, uh, John, are you familiar with Omicron and whether 
as compared to Delta, does a is there does a viral replication curve look very different? Does anybody know? Yeah, but Evan, that's the question that we would have to answer, which is, you know, that's a good question, actually. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, so Oh, Dr. Ramesh, yeah. I was just going to say you started this because you said you were feeling a bit better about Omicron. Uh, this, <laughs> yeah, this we all feel great. So, we all feel great. So I wanted now. to make sure we at least got some positive vibes out here because I know a lot of crap. We're going to talk about a lot more crap because there's there's a lot of other stuff. But one one of the positive news that Dr. Donish was alluding to is the fact that Omicron infections seem to be milder. And there are three research teams that have now reported this. And we have done a deep dive in all three of these. Um, and so let me tell you a bit about them. So there's three studies. The first one is from South Africa. It's the early assessment of the clinical severity of SARS-CoV-2 Omicron variant in South Africa. And um, again, this is a, um, I don't know if this is a preprint or if this, yep, this is a preprint and has not been pre-reviewed yet. But with that being said, again, we're always making sure we're disclosing it. This study showed that the risk of hospitalization was about 70% lower among people infected with Omicron compared to those infected with other variants of the coronavirus, the researchers found. The authors speculated that the milder cases might be due in part to the fact that Omicron can infect individuals who previously have had COVID-19 and who have been vaccinated. And therefore, while the variant can evade antibodies from previous infection and establish itself in the body, it may not be able to escape the powerful but slow immune response that prevents serious um, disease um, long-term. Uh, and so this was done, um, by uh, looking over the 160,000 COVID-19 cases um, that were tested using the different uh, different TACPAT PCR and then SGTF. Um, and so we will link that study in the Twitter and that was the first study that was mentioned. The second study was, um, was I think in, let me double check here. It was in a diff different country, uh, Scotland. This was in Scotland, but researchers examined Delta and Omicron cases in November and December, looking at how many patients with each variant were admitted to a hospital. And um, based on this, initial estimates suggest that compared with Delta variant cases, individuals infected with Omicron are 50 to 20% on average less likely to turn up in hospitals and 40 to 45% less likely uh, to be hospitalized for a night or more. So all that to say, uh, these are the slightly uh, optimistic news, but as Dr. Donish mentioned, we do have a pie and if you think about this pie, yes, you're less likely to be admitted, but if more people are being infected, uh, let's say you're 10% less likely to be admitted, but 50% um, of people are more likely to be infected, you know, all, all that to say the numbers don't really favor us long-term. So Dr. Donish, this, this is the slight uh, silver lining here. Any, any additional things? Yeah, I mean, I'm just gonna say that um, just like you, your, the healthcare workers that are working at the hospitals are pretty tired of COVID. Um, and whether somebody has Omicron or Delta, the patient that's in front of you has specific healthcare needs. And depending on, you know, whether they have a bunch of risks or whether they are a child, the, the complexity doesn't change in terms of your actual treatment protocol based on whether it's Omicron or Delta. And the other thing is when, a, when, you know, as John has said before, and there have been a few articles that have mentioned this before, which is when people are saying there's not enough beds, we can buy more furniture. That's not the issue. The issue is there's not enough healthcare workers, so much so 
that we're sending healthcare workers back into the front lines five days after they got sick themselves. Um, and so really the hard part here is how do we, how do we think through this problem in a way, because it is a real supply demand problem. As the demand rises for hospital beds or hospital personnel, we're going to come into this problem. I will say also, we have to be a little bit cautious around this hospitalization and death data because we don't know the long COVID data. And I, I want to be a little bit careful around that. But it is, it is very, very encouraging. So how does this actually change your decision making? Um, you know, right now, it kind of doesn't. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. But Edward, did you have a thought before we move on to how does this actually change people's decision making? I think it may have been a hot mic. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I was going to say that, you know, in terms of like your own family and what you should be doing, you know, what we know is that prior vaccination, uh, just fully vaccinated, not boosted, but prior fully vaccinated people are still at very high risk of reinfection or of infection by Omicron, but they have decently mild disease. Boosting really helps, but still you can get reinfected but it affects your ability. Uh, you, don't, you can't prevent an infection completely with, even though you're boosted. The, the, the hard part is now around what do you do in lieu of that? So frequent testing, but testing is really hard to do right now because you can't find tests anywhere. Yay. Uh, <laughs> like we still haven't figured out like pandemic 101 yet. Uh, we still can't find. I, I was looking for a test for, for my wife a few days ago. And, you, you know, it was really hard. I was actually in shock. Even the diagnostics are sold out everywhere, at least in my neighborhood. I couldn't even get an at-home one. Yeah, and people are upselling the crap out of it. If you go on Amazon and you start looking at these home rapid tests, they're being sold for, like, hundreds of dollars. It's kind of nuts. And it's, like, a real problem right now. And so, so you know, people would say, okay, masking, best thing to do. I would say you know, washing your hands is important, but masking, in my opinion, is the number one thing you can do. Uh, don't, don't go on cruise ships right now, just for a few weeks until we have data on long COVID. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw the story around the cruise ship, but like everybody got Omicron. Um, surprise. Uh, the, the testing wise, you know, testing wise, the challenge that we have is like, is rapid testing, you know, not all rapid tests are created equal. Uh, there are Binax ones, which are, which are pretty good. There are a few of them that are really good. So, so make sure that you at least look up which test is good for testing for Omicron. PCR testing is great, but it takes forever. And so we're actually kind of in a weird place where we're hearing chatter. I'll tell you this, um, in the text circles, I'm hearing chatter around like crazy things, like Omicron parties. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. I feel like deja vu. I feel like this is a deja vu. And there's an important thing here that I wanted to bring up. There is a major flaw in the thought process that I'll just, everybody's going to get Omicron. I might as well just get it, right? Then I'll get the immu infection mediated immunity. Yeah, except for the fact that we just learned from Omicron that prior infection does not give you immunity for future variants. <laughs> Again, you know, why are we not learning from history and from what's actually happened in this pandemic instead of your flawed logic, right? And so 
So what do you do? You got a mask. That's what I would, I would be religious on masking, even amongst family. Even if everybody is boosted, I'd be very careful to get tested on top of masking or, or to get tested before you remove your mask. That's my personal opinion. There's, you know, the guidance is two people in the house, all of this stuff. We just went through Christmas. The holidays are still here. People are still taking time off and spending time with family. What I would really recommend is before somebody, if before you're willing to take your mask off, don't just ask them if they're vaccinated and boosted. Um, and actually, if they're vaccinated, that's not enough to begin with. But if they're vaccinated and boosted, then I would still do a quick rapid test if you can get one or if you can afford one. Um, and then I would feel free to remove my mask if that was negative as well. And then follow up and make sure that you're OK. But Catherine, I wanted to get your thoughts on how you're act- actually doing and not what the CDC recommends. But like, what did we actually do? Because I think like people, people want practical sure. ways of actually dealing with this. Catherine, go ahead. Okay, and let me know if my connection's poor. Um, I made it to uh, a beach vacation, and to do that, we had to test negative by PCR. It was difficult to source a PCR with a quick turnaround time, so that's a concern. I'll tell you this. I agree, Danish, with your recommendations that if you're going to share air indoors, unmasked with people, that the preference is that they're vaccinated and boosted. Now, that rapid antigen testing is helpful when it's positive, but if it's negative, it can still be a false negative, especially if you're not doing serial testing and you don't have active symptoms. I want to, you know, I'm not surprised people are saying, oh, if this is going to be a mild, let's have the Omicron party. But I'm with you. Prevention is always better. And there are many of us who are saying, you know what, there's a surge. I'm just going to lay low and let everyone else get it and cause the chaos that's going to cause for their uh, celebrations, their work schedules, their schedules, really doing anything. If you test positive for COVID, you really should be isolating. If it's five or 10 days, whatever category you fall into, that's going to change and crimp your style. And I would uh, encourage you to think about that. But what I really want to bring to the attention of this room is that the signal we're seeing for Omicron is that the very young infants are having difficulty maintaining the secretions. And this is a problem. First of all, they don't qualify for vaccine and um, everybody wants to hold a baby and cuddle, you know, and if you're a parent and you get infected, it's inevitable that your infant will get infected. We are seeing a signal, especially in New York, more children are presenting to hospitals who are under the age of five and they're having difficulty. They can be having some respiratory challenges. Children, we call them obligate nose breathers. And it's not 100% that they breathe from their nose, but when their noses get stuffy, if you've ever raised a kid, they don't know how to blow their nose. They don't know how to rinse their nose and they get fussy, they won't eat. They can uh, get croupy, they can have some wheezing. And this is what we're seeing with the Omicron virus because it does seem to be more of a nasal infection for a lot of kids. But that in of itself, just like RSV, can really be problematic. So if you wanna protect anyone this winter, please protect the infants and the little ones. Thank you. I'm gonna also add um, additional additional insight into um into omicron and the fact that the fda authorized the second antiviral pill to treat COVID 19 um so this is the second one so if you knew last week pfizer 
Pfizer's pill, Paxlovid, was was approved. But actually, the U.S. FDA on Thursday also authorized Merck's antiviral pill, Molnupiravir, to treat COVID-19 uh, for mild to moderate um, COVID-19 in adults with positive um, positive uh, positive results. All this to say, I think it's a good step because I think the one part of the pandemic that has been underemphasized has been um, has actually been treatment, right? Like we we've been so focused on prevention, which is great. Uh, but I, it's good to know that if and when we actually uh, have someone who's positive, you actually have treatments now. And of those treatments, I actually wanted to mention some of the statistics here. So if given within the first five days of symptom onset, the efficacy of the COVID-19 pill from Pfizer is actually 88%. And it goes up to about 89% if given to high-risk results, high-risk adults within a few days of their first symptoms. So that means um, if you give it within the first one or two days of your positive, Pfizer said that the treatment cut the risk of hospitalization or death by about 89%, which is uh, reassuring and another another uh, progress in this uh, upfront battle. Just to be clear, the EUA was for adults only, correct? This is not for pediatrics. No, this is for adults, yep. Yeah, and so that's kind of going back to what Catherine was saying. I was just looking this up, Catherine. Thank you for sharing this. Um, I found one article on it, Catherine, if you've got a better one. I, I don't usually like the Washington Post just because of the paywall. No, it's uh, the New York I'm Department of Public Health. But I, if I could just prereq say something really briefly. I am licensed in the state of Illinois in Florida. Illinois told us they're going to send 3,000 doses, around 3,000 doses of GlaxoSmithKline monoclonal antibody for Omicron about 3,000 courses of Pavlo, Pavlo, whatever it's called. Paxlovid, uh, yeah. Pfizer's saying Paxlovid, thank you. And about 9,000 courses of uh, my, the, the one ending in Veer. So there you go. That's it. That's for the whole state <laughs> of Illinois, you guys. And that's they aren't even shipping them after December 29th. And the criteria to even qualify for those courses of treatment are being an active cancer or a transplant patient on immunosuppressants or having significant comorbidities. So we're talking in the next four weeks. Yes, it's very exciting. We have these treatments, but, you know, it's worth waiting if you can to get, expose yourself to this variant if at all and so when those are going to be readily available you can call your primary care doctor and you can go pick it up at walgreens later that day that's absolutely not where we're at and, and on that note you know wanted to make sure uh, uh i'm going to run through this story but i want to make sure that we also run through another story before that because after this i'm going to go into Dr. Rearson's uh, work at Fluvoxamine, and she actually has a room running right now. I think she's uh, going to be leaving for that room, but we'll put the link to that room at the end before we close. But, you know, this, this issue around children, and so thank you for sharing that. You know, uh, this is just the Washington Post article, but uh, as you mentioned, uh, you know, we're seeing hospitals fill up fast. It's not just because of what, what Catherine was saying, which I think is really important, which is we're seeing, and, and Catherine, if you can the back channel me the link of the uh the data that you were share you were sharing I, I just you know just the way that we run this rooms as you know like i, I want to share information that is easily accessible for everybody so they can quote unquote do their own research but also listen to the experts talk about the research that they're doing uh but uh, you know just in general just so people are aware there was some early indication from south africa that children were being infected with omicron and remember that in the u.s 
we don't uh, vaccinate children under the age of five. And so, you know, uh, uh, clearing secretions is actually a huge challenge, even with, as, as Catherine was mentioning, RSV. Uh, but now you're thinking about we're in flu season. We're still getting RSV cases. And on top of that, you add Omicron, which is, you know, just much more infectious. Uh, you know, do I think it's selecting for children? I don't know if the data shows that yet, but I do know that because it's more infectious, there's a higher risk of children. The pie is getting bigger and it's including more people. And so how, why does this ma matter? Well, this matters because of one really big problem, which is the pediatric healthcare infrastructure in this country is very limited. We actually, because of the amount of chronic disease we have in this country, we actually have a ton of infrastructure around adult care because adults get sick much more than kids. Kids aren't supposed to be getting sick enough to go to the hospital. That's not a thing. I mean, it happens, and, but it's, it's not supposed to be the way things are. So that's why we don't have giant hospital infrastructure for children. But now that, that kids are getting, you know, one hit, double hit, triple hit with this, you know, and again, we know that 10 to 13% of children that are infected, at least with Delta, that was the data. Uh, we don't know with Omicron yet, by the way, I just want to be very clear on children and long COVID. But, you know, with Delta, 10 to 13% of the kids were getting long COVID. That is absolutely heartbreaking. That's a debilitating, lifelong debilitation. And it can be very, very difficult. And so I think we just don't know enough yet. And we don't know the impact of all of this yet. And so, you know, um, Hold on. Oh, Catherine just sent it. I'm just going to pin this. Thank you, Catherine. Um, so, Catherine, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pin this uh, for everybody. Can you walk us through the data as I pin this up? Just give me one second, okay? I'm going to pin it so everybody can go to it, and then you can walk us through it. Perfect. Yeah. Right now, I'm on a beach, so I don't have, like, a second device to actually read it. But, you know, the, the signal is what we're talking about. And this was also shared from Pennsylvania as that previous news article showed other hotspots in the country right now. Houston showed a signal for it. Parts of Miami showed a signal for this too. And that is that children under the age of five, we're seeing a signal for their increased rate of hospitalizations related to COVID-19 infections. And mm. think about that. We only admit a very small proportion of children. We try to tune them up, get them home, because we all know everybody recovers better at home, and children especially uh, want to be home with their families. So they're at higher risk for getting dehydrated, for getting pneumonias, for having wheezing. And uh, this is a patient population I think we should really be sensitive to and appreciate that where there is signal, you know, it's often, you know, if you smell the fire, you know, there is something burning. So let's just pay attention. Let's hold tight. Oh, this is interesting. What's going on here. Yeah. So let's walk through the actual, so I have it in front of me so I, uh, I can help here. So as I'm reviewing this, over half, approximately half the cases of half the hospitalizations that they're seeing are in people, in kids. Uh, half of the admissions that they're making are in kids that are less than five years of age. Holy crap. That is, but just so you guys are aware, that's very unusual for any of the prior um, waves. Huh. Yeah, I'm going to look into this. Thank you, Catherine, for sharing this. And then for the most recent week, again, speaking to this whole BS around, oh, the, the, the people being hospitalized are the vaccinated. What kind of crock is that? So the data, let's talk the data in kids especially. Uh, so for uh, the most recent week in New York, 
none of the five to 11 year old patients were, were fully vaccinated. So what I mean by that is of the people that were hospitalized, of the little kids from five to 11 that were hospitalized, none of them were fully vaccinated. And only one quarter of the 12 to 17 year olds were fully vaccinated. Again, uh, uh, I don't have booster data here, but I'd be very curious to see that. But it shows you that the large majority of kids that are being admitted, if you count less than five, then it's like clearly the, the crazy large majority of kids that are being admitted are unvaccinated. So, you know, now we're talking about what you can do. Again, the goal here is to allow kids to not develop things like long COVID. It's, a lot, it's to allow them to be able to, you know, not end up in the hospital. This is not asking for too much, in my opinion. And I know people are really scared around this, but billions of people around the world have received this vaccine and millions and millions have received boosters. Uh, you know, I think, I think it's time. So that's the big learning lesson. I wanted to end this room with what Catherine was mentioning, and I wanted to make sure that we mentioned this. So, you know, um, while it's super exciting that we have all of these incredible therapeutics that are coming to the market, supply chain is still a huge issue. And so why does this matter? Well, it matters because as we think about what to do next, we can't, unfortunately, I really wish we could, by the way, we can't rely on these new therapeutics to solve our problems. And it sucks. I wish we could actually, because I'm not, you know, not to say that vaccines aren't important. Of course, they're important, but we know that there's a certain percentage of the population that just won't do it. And that's okay. That's their choice. Uh, it's okay for them. It's, it's shitty for everybody else. Um, but now we are in a situation where we do have early treatments, but there's not enough supply chain for them. So, and we're in the middle of a surge. So there are some other options that we have. Um, and I just want to also mention for people that are relying on, uh, the, the people that are relying on Regeneron, uh, not so good with Omicron. So uh, that's what I would remember for yourself as well, that Regeneron actually has really poor uh, coverage of Omicron. So, you know, when we're thinking about um, options, fluvoxamine does come to the table. I will say it's important to understand the science behind it. Uh, you know, I'm very bullish on fluvoxamine because it's easily available. It's over the, you know, it's, 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 it, your physician can prescribe it. It works well in early course of disease. Um, pretty good side effect profile. It's a very short course. Uh, but I would say this is one of those things where you have to talk to your physician and their level of comfort around this medication. And you have to understand the science. So what I would recommend for everybody in this room to do is I just pinned the link to Angela's room. It's going on right now. Uh, she is a colleague from WashU. Uh, I am a big believer in some of the work that's being done from that institution around fluvoxamine. Um, I am not a hundred percent, and she knows this. I, you know, I I have my own questions around the efficacy data, around the, the you know where it actually is valuable. How early do you have to start it? what the correct dosage is. These are all things that have not been figured out, but there's huge news around fluvoxamine, and I wanted to end with it. Fluvoxamine, uh, uh, they have just submitted for an EUA, or emergency use authorization for fluvoxamine in early course of disease. And she's gonna be talking about that. So I would recommend everybody in this room, 
to go to Angela's room and to learn more about it. I, I'll be joining you guys there. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining us. And please have a safe Sunday. All right. Bye-bye, everyone. Feel free to tweet us your stories at Health News for the next week, and we will see you here next week. Same time.